Director's Club with Brad and Al. In each episode of the Director's Club, we go and take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout films, their career touchstones, uh, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that could be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films that can come up when you look at a director's body of work. Come join us on the film journey. Hi, I'm Al. And I'm Brad, and we are part of the Now Playing Network. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a filmmaker whose career is just so vast and expressive and very, very different. Uh, this is uh, German director Werner Herzog. In fact, it's so vast that we're going to have to do this in two parts. So uh, today we'll be talking about the beginning of his career, which uh, focuses mostly on narrative films, all the way through uh, 1987's uh, Cobra Verde. But are we going to talk about Grizzly Men or Bad Lieutenants? I, not this time. So hopefully you'll be able to join us uh, at some point next year when we do Herzog Part 2. But for now, let's jump right into part one. What makes like Herzog like so special? A lot of it is that he goes and shows you these things in his movies that you have never ever seen before. He like expands these boundaries on seeing people you've never seen, places you've never been, and he gives you this sense that not only that these moments can be like just these like magical, almost like once in a lifetime occurrences that pop in actually really regularly through his work, but also there's a kind of a sense that things could spiral out of control if the camera was on just a little longer or if, uh, if someone moved in the wrong direction or what have you. There is this sense of both spontaneity and danger that pervades a heck of a lot of his work. Right. And, and part of the unusualness of Herzog, I think, comes from his very unusual biography, which is very different than most other directors will be covering here. Here is a guy who was born in a remote, tiny Bavarian town at the, near the end of World War II. And he didn't have a telephone in his household. He made his first call at the age of 17. He had not seen a film until he was a teenager. This is very different environment from many of the directors who were uh, born and bred on movies. And so his point of view is so different. He has this thing about walking and that he, on a whim, would decide to just walk the borders of his country for days at a time. Hmm. And there are these real eccentricities to this guy that has nothing to do with movies, yet they show up in his movies. I, but I do think they did manifest itself in, in some points, Like, right? Wasn't there like an, a story where he literally stole the camera he used for the first series of films? Right. He believes in guerrilla filmmaking in, in the, the truest sense of the word. He, once he did get the bug about films, uh, his attitude became that everything must take a back seat to them. And so he becomes kind of this mixture 
of uh, Jacques Cousteau meets P.T. Barnum (laughs) in the sense that this amazing curiosity is also combined with this willingness to, uh, to do anything for the show. And that fits in with his reputation, which is, you know, how much of a madman is Werner Herzog? Because <laughs> if yeah. you listen to his uh, interviews, he tells all kinds of stories. But how much of those are true and how much is it him being P.T. Barnum? <laughs> Boy, I'm, I'm really, really glad you brought that up, Brad. I mean, because it's kind of important for people who are unfamiliar with like Herzog's work to get kind of a little bit of a sense of the framework about what we're, about how he's operating. Um, I, I hope you guys are getting a, from a little sense of his history and uh, from some of what we're saying in this introduction about like making conventional stories and conventional plots is not really Herzog's deal and is not the biggest thing that people should try to appreciate about his work to the extent that you're watching his films uh, and you have a feeling in your head and in your heart of, I can't believe the shit I'm looking at. <laughs> That's kind of part of what Herzog's doing. But, but the other part, the Cousteau part is also true. Like, I can't believe what I'm seeing, but there might be some underlying truth or something that just feels right about the, the things you see in his films, no matter how crazy they can be. Right. So you have this, unequaled visualist as far as bringing uh, different places of the world home to you, combined with this theme that he's fascinated with, which is madness, which is why he tends to use unusual actors or non-actors in a way that is going to give him a result that is nothing like you see in any other film. Yeah. What makes... A person, what makes a whole person, um, is a com, it seems to be a common concern of what he's, uh, doing in his films. Like, just the way, like, people fall short, like, mentally, or, or sometimes even physically, um, and also how, like, their, the environments, like, shape people and warp people to certain degrees. There's also a very particular context that he's making his films in, because just as American films uh, were changing in the late 60s and the 70s, this is when uh, Herzog comes to the fore as part of uh, what was known as uh, New German Cinema. So he came uh, along with other directors like Wim Wenders, Rainer Werner Fassbender, and Volkel Schlondorf, uh, who were the first directors since uh, before World War II to truly uh, create an original cinema out of Germany. And as they would be the first to say, the reason for that is because during uh, the Nazi period, cinema basically shut down in Germany. Anything that wasn't state-sponsored Nazi cinema was shut down. So Herzog often tells about how he has to they had to be influenced by their grandparents because their parents, representing the Nazi generation, were a time when creativity shut down. In Herzog's career, it almost seems that there is an overabundance of creativity <laughs> or an, an overabundance of creative um, exploration anyway. <laughs> Maybe that's the very specific way 
that Herzog reacted to, to such a like repressive environment from the previous generation. Very much so, with a fierce independence. It's exhilarating to to be shot at uh, without success. <laughs> so only men understand that. It's uh, probably women uh, do not understand this uh, exhilaration. So let's go get started with his first feature film, Signs of Life, made in 1968. It's about like a World War II soldier who is recovering from a war injury who gets uh, stationed afar from the battlefront on a small island where he, his wife, and uh, two other soldiers are uh, guarding munitions at a nearby fort. With little danger or duties they're concerning themselves with, they engage in all these kinds of small-scale activities until... The psychology of one of them take a different turn. This is a really impressive debut from Herzog, not just because he's already got a distinctive and powerful visual style going, but also the themes that he's going to uh, go back to again and again in his career are already there, uh, just about fully formed. And, you know, you start with this great sense of location. They're on these, the, the beautiful, uh, island of Kos in, in, in the Greek islands. And the, uh, characters are in this, uh, stone fortress that provides this wonderful background for all the action, uh, we, we see. The fort is not just like unique in how it like a little bit bigger than four people are supposed to handle, mm -hmm. but the fort's also fascinating in that various rubble from old ruins have been brought up from the ground due to the various bombings that had happened earlier at this area. And so you get these great shots where like parts of statues, legs and faces are jammed into the walls of the fort. So like, like the heads look like they're screaming out from the middle of a wall. <laughs> right. It's visually interesting and also provides characters with a lot of bits of business, which is a lot of fun in this movie. You have the first of, of a few examples in a Herzog film of somebody trying to hypnotize a chicken by right. uh, drawing a chalk <laughs> line and facing the chicken towards it. This is, Herzog is going, has a thing with chickens, so we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that in a bit. But also... A, Auteur! A fellow, yeah. <laughs> also a fellow who uh, has come up with a way to uh, catch uh, roaches yeah. in a trap and a little toy owl that uh, moves with the help of a fly. The first part of this movie comes with all these wonderful, I'd almost call them documentary-like touches. Hmm. Documentary-like touches. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily know about calling it a documentary in as much as, like, they feel, like, authentic of something that, like, Herzog actually, I don't find he does do in a lot of his later films, which is that this film, to me, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's not something that's said about a lot of Herzog stuff, about he has a lot of fun. But it is fun. These people are just trying to find interesting things to do to while away the boredom on their environment are thinking of all these uh, kind of attempted creative activities and trying to make do and make some interesting things out of what they have. Like this, the cockroach capturing contraption is this delightful Rube Goldberg on a budget kind of deal. And even the soldiers are surprised when it actually works. <laughs> mm -hmm. To me, it like 
really is effective at evoking what bored teenagers would do. You know, like, what do you, what do, you do for a, on a lazy Sunday afternoon? Well, this is like their mission is the lazy Sunday afternoon. Right, except I think what makes this Herzog is that there's a dark undercurrent behind all of that. Because the reason they're in this um, remote fortress away from all the action of World War II is because our main character, Strozik, is suffering from a, a severe case of PTSD. It is implied that he has had some kind of breakdown earlier, so they've reunited him with his wife, and he has his uh, two friends with him, and... You see him trying to adjust to this life, and you you mentioned you know bored teenagers. Part of the tension of this part of the film is the boredom itself. Is there because they can't fight in the war, because they can't be soldiers the way they were trained to be? There's an undercurrent of this kind of of how the boredom is affecting the characters, very particularly Strozik, who, by the way, bears no relation to the uh, character Strozik of a later film. The name is based on a childhood friend of Herzog's. That's really fascinating because I don't see that kind of dark undercurrent at all. And maybe it's because, like, the actors or or Herzog's direction of them was not did not bring it did not come across to me in at least in the first half. But maybe part of it is that I was so enchanted by the different ways the soldiers are dealing in their environment. Like one person is just has a whole collection of um, quirks and and he that he's very he's fastidious and he just hates the quote unquote vermin, which is why he builds this crazy cockroach trap. Another person is fascinated by all the by the local ruins and what's written on them, so he's trying to decipher them. Uh, Stroshik is probably the least involved in terms of like he's mostly doing the lounging around and and just sitting lying in a hammock and so on. He I can't say he's having a grand old time, but he seems to be just taking it taking it easy. Oh, I also want to point out, like, that, I mean, their antics even include riding a bike around the floor, mm-hmm. for Christ's sakes. I mean, it is kind of showing this sense of innocence, actually, which is quite startling when you when I see in a Herzog film. But do, do you think that Strozik was fully uh, participatory in that innocence? Because uh, I sense this distance during those scenes where uh, his his wife is trying to engage him romantically, his friends are trying to engage him with various activities, he runs into all sorts of uh, eccentric people around the island, and, and maybe I'm just projecting from what happens later in the film, but I got the sense that he was having trouble connecting to all this. You know what? I see what you're I see where you're coming from on that. I mean, I didn't take that as as a measure of darkness though. I kind of felt for Stroshik and the other guys out there in this in their fort like <laughs> in a way maybe like their fort is like the treehouse from Badlands mm. where where Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek uh hang out. In, in this environment, they're just out trying different things because they really are, they're soldiers and who do not, are not in a war environment. They literally don't know what the purpose of their mission or the value is of guarding these munitions, which I think is even said that the munitions are for weapons that are no longer in use. Henceforth, they're mm-hmm. just 
you know, gunpowder in various containers, which leads to them using them to make fireworks and other fun activity. But I do see where there is a distance that Stroshik has that the other two, the other two don't. They're kind of making, the other two are making do in their own way. But he seems to be more questing for, hey, what's, you know, uh, what's the point behind all this? Because he does visit the town. He, he hangs around with the kids. And there's a really poignant moment where he sees a soldier and he's playing this wonderful piano piece. As he's looking at this guy playing the piano, he's really taken by that this guy has a skill, he has an ability, he feels for the music that's that this guy's able to express. And I was not necessarily seeing what Stroshik, like if Stroshik wanted to be able to do the same thing, but I think he wants to do something like it, you know, and he's mm. not getting this from that environment. <laughs> to me, I look at this movie and I honestly think, I, th- I, th- I think this might be Herzog's versions of Clerks. Hmm. <laughs> you know, these guys whiling away in this very stark kind of environment, and they have a feeling that they weren't even supposed to be there for this mission today, and, and like that sense of like rootlessness and just what, what is the, and what is the job? What is the job I need to do? And the sort, the kind of angst about that feels to me very, very youthful. Mm-hmm. And it also has something that is, uh, I was not expecting, which is that there is a little bit of camaraderie because these are people who it's not like a case of a loner fighting against the world, at least not that's not in the beginning. It, they have a, they have a level of playfulness with each other. They rib with each other. They, they engage in like different kind of would be adventures with each other. Right, well, we should give credit to uh, one of the actors, uh, Wolfgang uh, Reichman. Yes, uh, yes. Who, uh, <laughs> who plays the most uh, boisterous of the three. He is the one who's always uh, basically got schemes and, and looking to uh, play, uh, you know, to, to, to be playful, to get Strosik out of uh, his shell. And, and, and performance-wise, he really marks a contrast and I think provides a lot of that kind of everyday life feel that you're describing. Yes, yes. Oh, I really enjoy, yes, I really enjoy my Meinhard. He kind of gets like this kind of Rob Corddry vibe about like, you know, there's a, it's not even like mischievous, but it's just uh, how he's, how he has a reaction to specific things that happen to him is, uh, I find just really, really charming. Right, like he, he invents a game where the characters have to sit against a wall with no chair and see how long each of them can do it. Yep. And then Strozik's wife just doesn't want anything to do with it. She's there for two seconds and yep. leaves. Then <laughs> the the other the other two just kind of sit and wait and see. And, and then one know, of the guys just like is just stays there, even right, though he's right. one. He's like, oh, this is fine. <laughs> you know, it had that right exactly. It has this wonderful kind of like deadpan humor to it, which is reminds me of like some of the work that like Jim Jarmusch does in his films, and just the just this way of like, well, you know, there's not not a whole lot happening in terms of like plot or danger or drama in it so what what can people make do on this situation and the results can be very very funny right and not a lot happens until it does and so i'm going to give kind of a a a spoiler warning for this but also a generalized spoiler warning uh for this podcast herzog has so many amazing endings and we're going to talk about them and if you haven't seen some of these films, some of those endings are just really powerful. And so consider that kind of an o- overall spoiler. So that's a great point, Brett. Yeah. I mean, you're, 
Herzog's films, uh, a lot of the cool things about his films are, are just the amazement of discovery of these things that you've never experienced or never, never experienced in a similar way until Herzog has shown it to you in this way. And so it's very much recommended to take a look at the, take a look at his films before fully uh, diving in on, on how we talk about it. And when we make a comment on the ending being r- remarkable, get yourself over and check the film out. Right. So the thing we see here in Signs of Life that uh, happens about the 20 minutes to the end that shifts the context of the movie and shows, I think, the darkness that's been underlying all along is when uh, Strozik and his uh, partner go out on uh, patrol and they run into this uh, valley of hundreds of windmills. And... Herzog has a way of shooting these windmills. He said himself that they completely haunted him. A lot of things haunt Herzog and, <laughs> and, and freaked him out. And the way he films them, along with the soundtrack, uh, when intense things happen in this film, he brings about uh, an acoustic guitar to play folk melodies that emphasize yeah. them, sometimes augmented with strings. And so the effect of the music, the effect of the way he films these hundreds of windmills in the distance, and then the editing uh, between that and Strozik's reaction, which is to have a complete and utter breakdown and uh, we see in the distance him having to be subdued because he's gone for his gun. Yeah, it's filmed in a really remarkably cool way where it, it does a very slow pan from uh, left to right, as and it, which keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And the fans of the windmills are are colored and they turn in such a way to kind of remind of the sort of the hypnotist kind of spiral, <laughs> except there's hundreds and hundreds. It looks like there's hundreds and hundreds of these things. And after you do a long pan... You cut back to Stro- uh, reaction of Stroshek, and then it cuts back, and it shows an equally long section of panning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the feeling you get when you see it is that you are surrounded by hundreds of these things, and you get a sense of that, that Stroshek that you feel oppressed, but you can't quite understand why that is. The sign of, of the great filmmaking is just, even though it, it's innocuous looking in some ways, the way Herzog films it, we understand that this has now become not just what we see, but something that is causing a breakdown. And then that breakdown leads uh, Strozik the next day to actually arm himself take over the fort everyone who is again not combat ready pretty much uh, runs back into town strozik ends up killing a donkey but then holds himself up in, in in this fort and in an interesting decision almost is always looked at in long shot from that point on yeah that's right there's like so many interesting shots of the fort, which is now empty of everyone except Strozik, and then you just see him, and he's frantically running and scampering on these on the parapets and and rushing for this door or to look out this window, and the sense of how he is so diminutive now in his lonely environment, you know, and it just ties in and like we sometimes like when you see an early film of a director, you get a sense that like oh these are elements that are in 
uh, his subsequent movies. But here, I actually think this is the transformation of Herzog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is Herzog's origin story to me, <laughs> because after that breakdown, it becomes the story that we will find happens again and again in his work about a loner who is not under, able to understand the world, not able to relate to the world, and also the environment helps drive him to this state, and it's how he rails against that kind of environment. This is That is kind of a classic Herzog deal, but it gets transformed in there from the first half. Right, because when we look at uh, what we might think the reaction of a soldier who loses it might be, we're still a little surprised when he starts ranting in ways that that almost reminded me of Aguirre, who we'll we'll talk about in a few films. Oh, that's interesting. Because he starts to uh, shoot off fireworks. Uh, again, a, a visual feast uh, here in this film. But he talks about that he's trying to attack the sun, using the fireworks to yes. fight the sun. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So now we have this in, this. Herzogian level of yeah. delusion already in his first main character. Yeah, yeah I'm a very much of a fan of Werner Herzog, but while watching this uh, film, for the first time, I had actually felt really bad for Herzog. I look at that first half of the movie, and I just think, Herzog still is very creative in that first half, but there's a level of sort of empathy for different points of view, and and different like parts of humanity, just a, a, a sense of kinship with with other people that like seems to me just gets lost, and I I feel kind of really bad for that Herzog because that Herzog is scantly ever makes an appearance in his subsequent films. I, I disagree a little bit because I think that appearance occurs more so in documentaries where. And so I understand why, if you if you look at his fiction films, which is what we're mostly going to be talking about yeah. in, in part one here, that absolutely seems to be the case. But I, I think as you go into documentaries, you find these character bits, these people who he's found almost at random that he finds something to be affectionate about and, and, and to love in. Yeah. And so... Yes, I think that becomes missing from the narrative films, but is still present in documentaries. That's a, that's an interesting point. I'm I'm very curious when we get start getting into the documentaries to seeing how they uh, how they look. I also really like your point about the music because I think the music gives that kind of haunting quality you were just earlier describing. It kind of actually reminds me of what. The zither music in Third Man is kind of oh, does. good call, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and that effect works really, really well at the ending scene. You don't see Stroshik. You're just looking at it from the fort, from the vantage point of the town, and then all these fireworks are just coming off. It sets this kind of folk music, mm-hmm. and it gives this kind of sense of like just sadness of lost youth and lost innocence. Like, probably the best sad use of fireworks until Blue Valentine, honestly. <laughs> like, because it's bright, it's it's captivating, but you feel how transient it is. Especially when you see it's this mission to fire at the sun or moon or what have you. <laughs> you see that how futile it all gets. Right. All and, this raging. And there, the, and there are two sequences that both go to different purposes. The, the daytime fireworks 
demonstrate Drozik's madness and his, his disconnect. But then the second set of fireworks at night, again, in addition to the, the visual richness, also moves the plot forward because while he's setting off fireworks, he's away from the big ammunitions and that sets up uh, a way for the uh, the, the, the other troops the, the to go troops and get to him, come yeah. in and and and, cap, and and capture him. That's that's right. Which, which is, strangely enough, we never see. They do, they don't they don't show us that. Maybe for budgetary reasons, maybe for creative reasons. Right. But, but it works because we then switch to a point of view shot from the back of a truck. Again to this uh, wonderful uh, music, yes, and, and again there there there's this kind of peace has been restored feeling to, mm-hmm. to the very ending scene that maybe Strozik might himself be relieved that uh, his ordeal is over. Huh, interesting. And I, I took it a little different because from the back of the truck, which is pulling out this inordinate amount of smoke, that kind of smoke got, gave me an effect that say. Oh my God! It's all is now like lost in the mm. mist of time. You know, it's kind of like in a way, Herzog's Herzog's innocence is lost, like Tears and Rain was in Blade Runner. This is lost in the smoke of a truck as your environment recedes into the distance. I wish Happy Herzog from the first half could just show up in narrative films again. He definitely is not very happy in his next film. Even Dwarfs started small in 1970. The story is a very simple one. An institution, which has several dwarfs are in different wings of the institution, and when the administrator is away, uh, they decide this is a good opportunity to wreak havoc at that location. Various levels of like mischief ensue with just one dwarf trying to maintain order, and the rest are engaging in more and more anarchic and antisocial activities. Notable about it, is that there is no fully sized human beings in there, which leads me to ask you, do you think that this is a social commentary, perhaps? Like, kind of like when you can't get the fort to be bigger than the man, like from his first movie, maybe you put the make the people smaller? <laughs> I have no doubt that that was the thought process that, that went behind it. But for the first and only time in, in Herzog, I have to say that I, I think it's a complete and utter failure. If I were to mm, try to think of something positive way to look at this film, it's that it got whatever he had to get out of his system, out of his system in this one film, because he never made another one like this again. He's often accused of exploiting in various ways and usually I, I tend to give him the benefit of the doubt but this time it seems to me not only exploitation but cruel exploitation and a nasty disposition not of its characters but not just of its characters but of, of the film itself we could talk about some of the things that happen but but i i think okay. this is kind of a uh a line crossed sin number one, the way little people are, are treated in this film is uh, they are mocked, they are infantilized, they are not fully drawn characters, but looked at, looked at as characters either of horror or to be laughed at, not to be laughed with. Mm, yeah, I... 
don't know how incongruous this is necessarily to the P.T. Barnum side of his nature. After all, isn't Barnum do the sideshow mm-hmm. featuring that exact kind of thing? Don't I mean? Isn't doesn't Herzog in a lot of films just do show some extraordinary image whose main purpose is in fact to be bizarre and to put you in a very weird place? That's kind of something that like surrealist filmmakers, for mm-hmm. example, were trying to specifically trying to do, like by by putting shocking images and putting things and ideas in juxtaposition with each other. It's meant to like kind of move your brain a little bit and help you appreciate other concepts or appreciate other things more. Right. And when Herzog does these in other films and he will go into surrealism and he will go into disturbing imagery, but in his other films, I always feel they're to an end. He's try he's using, he's using those images for uh, a larger picture and and here I, I don't sense it and and it's and it, by the way there's a lot more than uh just the pig there's also uh a monkey that they parade around uh being crucified there are various again chickens uh this time uh eating each other cannibal chickens the enormity of of their flat brain the enormity of their stupidity is just overwhelming you have to do yourself a favor when you're out in the countryside and you see chicken. Try to look a chicken in the eye with great intensity. And the intensity of stupidity that is looking back at you is just amazing. And then you combine that with the treatment of the little people themselves. There's a, uh, there's a scene where... Um, they force two of the smaller, uh, a man and a woman, they want them to go into the bedroom so they could have sex while they watch. But because in the world of this film, little people equals children, it's treated like the old, uh, you know, junior high, uh, yeah. closet game. And so, and, and yeah. they, they, and, and the, the, the smallest dwarf, can't even get on the bed which you know yeah. again according to the film seems to be the subject of much fun but but i couldn't garner yeah. that much fun from it the film is pretty offensive to me in a lot of the cases where they would have the dwarfs do like some activity and it would just cut to have minutes at a time of just chickens attacking each other mm. the comparison is very unfortunate and degrading to just go, oh, look at these antics. These are no better than a bunch of like dumb chickens scattering around, you know? I, I think it might be interesting to compare it to uh, another film that approaches the same subject matter, but I think does it in a less exploitive way, the the movie Freaks, the 1932 okay, right. uh, Todd Browning film, takes place in a circus with all manner of circus freaks, and there's kind of three phases to to this film and uh, there'll be a spoiler here too you know the first phase is we're shocked because we are not used to seeing people who are you know might not have limbs or might be deformed in various ways but then the film takes its time to let us get to know the freaks to see the relationship that they form with each other to see the bond they have and so what initially seems like it might be doing something similar uh, to this film becomes richer because they're humanized. And then 
when outsiders come in and and do them wrong and some become figures of horror the context of that is uh, uh, again full-blooded human reactions to, to to what happens and here there's no humanity um there is humanity it's humanity at its worst it's at its most superficial at its most banal at its most petty like almost everything that the dwarfs do there there's nothing really there's nothing uplifting there's nothing there's no sense of sympathy towards the towards uh towards them they have no experience no sympathy towards each other <laughs> but i don't think that, that that's not that that's inhuman i mean it might be more animal like and or maybe that might be a poor comparison that herzog's trying to make with the alternating shots of the chickens and so on but i think that level of cruelty and of and antisocial behavior maybe just all too human and i kind of think that might that might be part of why this film leaves a bad taste in my mouth is like you were saying that freaks does, which I completely agree. It shows you stuff from their side. And I think a Herzog's film is exploitative, not because it shows dwarfs doing weird things and having you laugh at them, but that so much that it is using dwarfs as some sort of, crude metaphor for society mm -hmm. you know that that the the point of like oh humans are so small-minded by literally having people with a smaller stature to stand in for that you know, see what i'm saying right right you know but i don't but i but i don't think like but i think the fact that like there is no full blood full-sized people in the movie is a specific decision that I don't think Herzog was literally pointing at like, look at well, look at how small people behave. Isn't that weird and stupid and, and something that full blooded, full sized people would never do? Right. I don't think he's do exploiting in that way. What what Herzog has said is that he he is not saying that the little people are the horror, but he is saying that the fact that so much that being little makes the rest of the world so unwieldy big is the horror, which I don't think really comes across. I mean, that's something he, he you know, he, he said that's in an, an interview, but, but uh, I, I didn't sense that while watching it. You have uh, the smallest of the dwarves, actually two dwarves go into these laughing fits. Yes, that's that right. That go on and on and on. And then the final laughing fit is combined with a camel defecating, you know, are yeah. we supposed to bravo that? You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> right. That image is something which you look at that and you think, hmm, you know, maybe watching movies is not necessarily the greatest thing some people can do. You know, there are other hobbies. <laughs> it's, maybe it says something for the film that it lets you as an audience member question what you're doing with your life choices. <laughs> and, uh, and special notice must be paid to the, the dwarf laughter, which in this movie, the way it's recorded or however they laughed, it's particularly very horrifying. You know, it, in fact, to me, it works like the opposite of what a clock alarm would do, you know, because... A clock alarm is something that you turns on and helps you wake up. But this dwarf laughter does the opposite, because after you hear it, you will never sleep again. But she must have been about 80 when a friend of mine called from Paris, come quickly, she's dying. She had a, suffered a massive stroke. 
And for a moment, I didn't know what to do. It was such a deep shock and something surged inside of me. And I knew you're not going to fly to Paris. You are going to walk. And I have to, it, it's, it was like a pilgrimage. I just grabbed a duffel bag and, and grabbed some solid shoes, put them on. And I knew I, I, I will walk the shortest, quickest route to Paris, a straight line. I, I took a reading from the compass and it was the beginning of winter with uh, snowstorms and, and hail and ice. And, and I walked for almost four weeks and I knew I would not allow her to, to die. Herzog's goes and has this very unique take on humanity, small and maybe not so small in this movie. But then in his next movie, he makes a very sharp right turn to what initially seems to have humanity absent altogether. That's a film of his called uh, Fata Morgana in 1971. This is a abstract visual collection of different elements of the Sahara Desert with almost no dialogue, but with an, uh, a narrated kind of parable being said and spots. And then it just is this collection of different views of like the desert sand, different objects that are out in the desert combined with this mediative kind of parable. It's doing something really that I find kind of interesting, even though it's a little difficult to explain just what. <laughs> well, you, you need a lot of patience while watching the film. It's uh, very slow-paced, but it's worth it. It's uh, got a lot of beauty in it. It's sort of a documentary, but I, I think he means it more as a bit of a of a poem, almost. He has narration punctuate various uh, parts of it, and uh, even, even parts of it feature uh, Leonard Cohen songs, too. Uh, oh, oh, nice. Yes. And it begins with, with a striking set of images, which is just of a plane landing, which if you saw it once uh, at the beginning of the film, you might not think too much of it, but you see it about 10, 12 times. And each time the plane is more and more distorted because what we are seeing is the subject of this uh, first part of the three parts, which Herzog uh, names creation, which is the idea of the mirage and the idea that mirages can indeed be captured on film. So you see the, the mirage of the planes becoming more uh, blurrier because of the uh, the exhaust fumes or whatnot. And then you start to see various desert scenes where you may or may not see something in the distance. You may or may not see uh, what looks like a lake or what looks like uh, somebody, a, a vehicle or, or a person through his visuals, you know, taking on this concept of the mirage. If you like films that are, that are these kind of like visual explorations, like I, I personally am, I'm a very much of a fan of like of experimental films, films that play with like light and color and shape and the different forms, very much like kind of like some abstract art. Phantom Morgana um, works quite well on it because that particular eye that served um, Herzog well in his um, first film just shows these just really amazing 
kind of collections of like how the how like the wind whips up the sand and these mm-hmm. circular patterns the the kind of waves that come the waves of heat how they distort like what looks like might be a vehicle moving off in the distance and just these great parts of the desert where like these curved dunes have their own ridges to it and and the and the camera is like moving off a vehicle so you see these like ridges enter the frame and the ridges seem to curl and unfurl amongst themselves and you're just like in a way it almost becomes like as hypnotic as the windmills from his earlier film for sure and as this uh, sequence goes on you start to see abandoned buildings abandoned vehicles and so what he does again very slowly is to introduce humanity into the natural world and so uh, it's told in uh, three parts uh, first part was creation with almost no signs of hum- humanity uh, the second part is called uh, paradise where we end up in uh, various villages and have some very interesting interactions with the people peoples he runs across because it seems possible that they have, may never have seen a camera before and aren't sure how to react to being filmed. And based on what we see, Herzog doesn't tell them how to react. Right. Their reactions are pretty unique. And their environment they come from, I, see, I remember, are pretty unique as well because it's this kind of town which looks like every quote-unquote building looks like it consists of one and a half walls <laughs> like it's just and it looks when you first see it it looks deserted like kind of and it's shown from a distance so it almost looks like a like a discarded um, chessboard or something from like thousands of years ago and yet when the camera is like kind of rolling and it gets closer suddenly all these people start like coming coming out of the woodwork and their like reaction out to the camera is and mostly really positive. Like they want, like some actually, I think there's some kids who even go and perform for the camera. Right. They seem especially happy when, when they get to shoot children. Yeah. Because the, the, there's, there, there's such an unforced uh, reaction to being filmed from them. Yeah. yeah you couldn't get a more disparate um, impression of smaller people than the kids in this movie versus the, the dwarfs in the previous one. Right, you know? right. <laughs> why, why do you think the phases were called creation and then paradise? Because it's not really a paradise kind of place. It's still very, very <laughs> arid, very, very hot, and a lot of sand. <laughs> right. And uh, the truth is, I have no idea, especially since the last section is called The Golden Age, which, once you get there, seems to be anything but, because now Herzog has a bit of a trick up his sleeve. We have left the natural world, we have left uh, primitive villages, and we are now in a small theater, very small, a makeshift theater almost, with a uh, middle-aged man and woman doing a musical number, singing and uh, playing piano. We don't find this out in the film, but what makes this interesting, I think, when you uh, read about the film, is that this is uh, in a, a whorehouse, and the man is, in fact, a pimp, and the woman is the, the madam of the whorehouse, huh. and they decided that they have a little show they put on, and so they put it on for Herzog, who filmed it. Right. That's a very interesting transition, because it's also kind of like very 
lushly colored for that. Like I think it's a nice green environment mm-hmm. where they're where they're at and uh, doing their doing their performance and and the camera's kind of fixated on just the performance itself. Where does the performance come from? Where does the mirage stuff come in? The parts of on nature, the mo- like that part kind of like threw me completely for a loop. <laughs> I had no idea what to, mm-hmm. what to make what to make of that ending. The only thing I could make of it is that he's trying to show this progression of of nature to humanity, and he he doesn't seem to approve because you know this is a pretty garish uh, display. It's it, it's not really a very good musical number no, that they're being that's no, being really. performed, uh, and then it attaches to another interesting sequence where we're back to some sand dunes. But this time, there are a bunch of uh, tourists wandering around the sand dunes. Right. And they're playing with their own little illusion and, they're, and trying to create their own mirage by just kind of popping their heads up behind each of the dunes for a uh, photo opportunity mm-hmm. and to, to show themselves. And it's a very uh, touristy thing. Considering where we began and, and where we ended up, I have to think that titles like Paradise and the Golden Age are meant to be taken ironically. Yeah, it's a very sarcastic take on it. Like, he's Herzog's so good in the beginning of showing the kind of mystery of the desert, the kind of weird, like, abstract quality of it that those characters at that moment are clearly not appreciating it on the way that Herzog is. And to end like that on this kind of just in this corny kind of song is, you know, you can look at it as a way of Herzog throws, throwing up his hands, go people, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> in a way, like it's, he still kind of has a little bit of the sour attitude, <laughs> you know, well, but he I, sees I, he the won't... beautiful part of it right. too, especially with the younger kids. So he does mm-hmm. have that, but, and he won't, he'll never lose that, that sour attitude. And, and all in all, I still very much like the film. I, I probably like the beginning of it a little more than the end, but it's still a great introduction to Herzog the Explorer. With each film, we're going to visit a different part of the world. Right. And right. here, uh, the, the Sahara Desert and Africa is his palette and I for I'm very glad he took us there. Well, like you I think you when you call it a palette that's a pretty uh, good uh, metaphor for what he was what he was doing cuz it's kind of the environment the the set of like the setting for where he wants to like look at humanity and I really and I really do like the movie and I guess what I really like about the movie is you know how sometimes there there's like an art piece where like you have like a chair and they like different parts of the chair are removed. And at one point does it stop becoming a chair? I kind of think that's what Herzog's trying to do in reverse mm-hmm. in Fata Morgana. Like he's putting in different things of humanity gradually, but at what point does it become a society? Does it become a, a human environment? You know, like they, for the objects first thought, like you see these towers in the distance, but they look like these, just these cylinders. So you don't really have a lot of form to it, you know, or you see the inside of a plane, but it just looks just like a tangled jumble, right? But then as things get more and more built up, 
where where does the humanity come in? And the uh, the other side of it, of course, is that the sourness, the sarcasm, and mm-hmm. what what what's that good for? And while this is all happening visually, it's also happening on the soundtrack because mm-hmm. at the beginning you have this narration of what I believe are. Uh, quotes from uh, Mayan scripture, which is uh, narrated by one of Herzog's heroes, Lottie Eisner, who uh, wrote uh, a famous book about uh, old German uh, cinema called uh, The Haunted Screen. Okay. And he made it, he made, you know, and, and he just has so much admiration for this person so that he had uh, Lottie Eisner do the narration, kind of tells you how he feels about that part of the film. And then as we move more into humanity, we bring in the Leonard Cohen music with, and finally end up with this strange song in the whorehouse. Yeah, that, I think you're kind of onto something of how the the use of the music and and so on is just kind of informs what he's really kind of feeling on here. It's where like his sour nature of humanity seems to come through as also as part of his depiction. Ultimately, I think maybe he really took the heart the uh, what Lawrence and Lawrence of Arabia said when he was asked, "Well, why do you like being in the desert?" And he her, would both Lawrence and Herzog would say, "It's clean." <laughs> The compelling visuals become doubly ironic when you see, like, the subject of his next film, The Land of Silence and Darkness, in 1971. It's a film that goes and takes a look of a, a lady named Finney Strobinger, and she is both blind and deaf. And over the course of the movie, you watch her as she... Uh, goes about her day and how she uh, interacts with uh, different people and how she both tries to communicate and how people who have um, been stricken with similar conditions. Right. She uh, suffered from a fall when she was a teenager and spent many years uh, bedridden and then uh, slowly lost uh, all of her uh, sight and hearing. And because she had already uh, lived to her teen years with those senses, she is able to communicate more than a lot of other people who are deaf and blind. And so she takes it upon herself to be a mentor, to be a teacher, to be a friend to people in, in, in this community it's an incredibly touching thing to watch. This woman is so engaging, and you you see her try to bring levels of sympathy to all these other people, and and they're all of different different kind of severity because of when they may have in their life uh, gone uh, deaf and blind. That's right. Some have been like deaf and blind from birth and had. No one teach them how to like read or write in Braille or what have you, or some are not even able to even walk because they've never learned how. Right. It's it's probably the most heartbreaking sequence is uh, this uh, young man named uh, Vladimir who is uh, deaf and blind from birth and cannot function in any way, cannot communicate in any way. She tries to interact, but but even even she can't reach him. Most of the other people can be reached in various ways. That basically, it's done through uh, an interpreter, 
goes with them and holds their hand, communicates with them by and translates what's being said by tapping their hands in various parts at various points, which uh, I guess indicates an alphabet. I think this is uh, poss- probably the system that uh, Helen Keller uh, was known for popularizing. Communication, or lack thereof, is often a theme in Herzog. Here you have heroic measures of achieving communication. Right. I mean, if, if that's a con- right, if communication and the lack thereof and isolation of people is a concern of Herzog's, I think this is kind of does this in its purest form. Like you're so, I agree with you completely that she is a, such a great tour guide because she is a person who has, while being very forthright about her limitations, does not have an appearance of like letting it um, slow her down. She doesn't treat it as an opportunity to be depressed about her situation, but instead is using like what limited ability she can to communicate to help other people who are in worse shape be able to go and uh, communicate and reach out. This includes like hosting parties and taking people on these like nature uh, nature trips where they're able to like feel different trees and different animals and then have their um, guides be able to explain what they're what they're touching. But their their ability to reach and experience life can be almost scarcely diminished. By the fa- by their limitations, and that's a really great message, a real positive message. Uh, it's heartwarming as hell to be able to see this come about, and just as much so as it is disheartening when you see people who have been are closed off in the most in the most severest way imaginable, and like maybe in ways that you don't usually imagine or had the opportunity to think up. But Herzog, I think, is really successful in bringing out that feeling of isolation when you just have these people and you just don't know where they're in their own world and there there's a whole world around them and how can they how can they note and experience it and you really really feel for them one other sequence i want to bring up when like a father has a kid who is is de- uh, deaf and blind and he's trying to get this kid to, into the water and just the way this uh, kid is so has this level of trepidation and the level of support that is that his father does to it, including letting the kid dunk to the father's head underwater for a bit to show that it's okay. It's just it it just goes so like, tremendously emphatic. Right when I first saw this film, it, I really fell in love with it, and I uh, found it to be one of the most engaging documentaries, one of the most engaging uh, Herzog films. So we're going to move to another element of the film. I'm uh, once again going to provide, but this time a different kind of spoiler warning. We're going to discuss something that goes on behind the scenes that may affect your appreciation of the film, or it may not. But just so you know, there is something to be said for watching the film without knowing what we're about to say. That that's correct. You should take a look at the film without any without any particular kind of expectations, and just just look at the people and look at what they're not just what they're saying, but maybe even more so what they're doing. But with that in mind, there's several moments where you see in the movie which aren't true. In the beginning of the movie, she mentions a story about. 
about never being able to see a ski jumper. And as it turns out, that was completely made up by Herzog for her to recite. Right. And as it turns out, Herzog had wanted to become a ski jumper himself. And uh, (laughs) ski jumping was kind of a big part of his uh, growing up. And soon after this would would make a a short documentary called The Great Ecstasy of uh, Woodcarver Steiner about uh, ski jumping and is steiner a woodcarver or is that his name (laughs) (laughs) like so much of herzog things are not always as they seem right but but (laughs) so now we have a situation where herzog's obsessions which of course in his narrative films he is free to explore is very pointedly put on to a can we even now call her a character in this documentary, and Herzog does not have a problem with this. He's basically saying that, as a documentarian, he has the right to interpret what he sees yeah. and apply some of his own some of his own thoughts onto that. And I think what's an interesting question is, does he have that right? Yeah, he right. Herzog has claimed uh, most uh, kind of infamously in a in a statement he said in in 1999 that's now been dubbed the Minnesota Declaration that documentaries they attempt to be quote unquote cinema verite or to show like truth objectively will never work because a person always puts their own perspective in on a documentary film and he goes further to say that when he tells characters to say things they wouldn't normally say and has them do things they wouldn't normally do, he has instead has claimed that he's reaching for some sort of um, ecstatic truth in his own words, some sense of, of a deeper truth that is that cannot be merely explained by just showing people and recording what they normally say. This I am personally like 100% against because... I think when Herzog does this in a film, and a film claims to be a documentary, what Herzog's doing is what I guess film studies groups would call um, cheating. (laughs) They'd call it cheating, because when someone watches a documentary, and you see a person in a documentary saying things, you have are framed by an expectation that that person is really, that is what the person really is saying, and that this is authentically the person you, who is being identified. And there's also, there's a level of authority that you give to the images that you see, that they are a level of real life, not this ecstatic true thing of Herzog's, but really real life. And Herzog, honestly, to me, Herzog exploits that in this film more than he's exploiting the dwarf people and even dwarf started small. He is taking your sense of that this is a real person. And when she has, then says about the ski jumper, you feel like as any, as any reasonable human would, oh my God, she's never going to see these come, especially when he cuts to her in the middle of her speech to a shot of a ski jumper. Right. You're, you're, you are meant to feel, oh my God, this great image and she will never see it again. But that is based upon the idea that she's really felt that way. And you are, you are doing her a disservice to herself her decades of experience on this planet 
by not going over for things that she is. Why, why are you going for things that you, as a wannabe ski jumper, are doing? You know? So, yeah, that's kind of, I think it's more exploitive and more offensive to me. Well, I agree with you up to a point. I, I do think it's wrong that he did that. I, I wish he hadn't. It does not ruin the film for me. I still find this uh, an amazingly engaging documentary, but, you know, it does provide a caveat. But I also have a little bit of sympathy to some of the thoughts behind what he's saying, even if I don't agree that the ultimate end game of that is that you can take a documentary and outright lie in it. There's a very uh, famous quote that says, uh, film is lies at 24 frames a second. And I think that uh, applies in the sense that even the most cinema verite of documentaries cannot achieve actual truth because the camera is always there. And the camera will always affect what is being shot. So, uh, again, not to excuse taking it to this level, but I, I even in documentaries, I expect a certain amount of leeway as far as we are not seeing the unvarnished truth of what we're witnessing. Of course, that is that is absolutely true. And even in uh, the most cinema verite you can imagine, where you put the camera on a table, the fa- the moment where you cut it to do something else is a choice. Right. And no matter how objective you want to make that choice, the fact that a choice is made, in fact, the, the choice of made of what footage to put in, of your in your movie, so it's only is only like ninety minutes. Though that is a whole sequence of choices, and every choice is a particular intent that was not objective. It's someone's decision. So that's absolutely true. But when you go in, like to me, when you do deal with the authority and the level of vermilitude that you're go- that, uh, that by calling something a documentary and I don't know if you noticed that I did not call Land of Science and Darkness a documentary if you are going to go and claim something as a documentary if you want to go and do some things to mess with the truth or change the truth or put in your perspective you should at least have a level of transparency to the audience in other words make the audience aware that the perspective is shifting. Errol Morris did this remarkably in a thin blue line where he literally had reenactments done from one person's point of view and then did a reenactment from another person's point of view. Mm -hmm. Obviously, both things could not have, both contradictory things could not have happened, but that was in a case where the subject was about a different perspective and trying to find the truth in it. In one of the best documentaries that came out recently, um, my kid could paint that. That is part of the subject, is what is authentic. In uh, Exit to the Gift Shop, you get put in a very, very weird place, but the film is very honest with you to say, this is an artist who's known for putting you into weird places. <laughs> and Orson Welles' mediation on truth is literally called F4 Fake, you see? None of that, unfortunately, is an evidence in 
Herzog's right. film. I think you hit the, po- the nail on the head with the idea of transparency, because in all those examples you gave, and also uh, in a lot of films from the Iranian New Wave of the 90s, there's a blurring of what we may think of as documentary and the narrative film format, but here we are forced to learn something outside of the film. We can't learn this from the film itself. We have to find out in other ways. So that takes it, uh, puts it more in a category of actually the, just about one of the first documentaries, uh, Nanook of the North, mm. which was a silent documentary following the Eskimos um, in the 20s. And we found out later that, in fact, many of the uh, situations the Eskimo family that we are following uh, find themselves in were scripted and were had the director telling them, do this, do that. Yeah. And, you know, we you know, here here now we again, we have to guess how much uh, is Herzog and how much is his subjects. For instance, the scenes with the animals at the zoo. Now, that may have been Herzog's suggestion. Right. But the reactions of the people to the animals and how the, the, the interaction we're witnessing, that seems authentic. But the very fact that I have to say the- seems instead of is right. brings up some, some problems. Yeah, it calls into question even your own feelings of empathy towards these people because you're unsure of where your empathy should lie. Am I really feeling for this stuff that somebody else told this person to say or what this person is really going through? But well, I was told that it's what this person's really going through. Well, in, in this case, I think we have the advantage of Feeney uh, Straubinger herself, who is a real person and... What we see her doing, even if if there are certain things that she was told, well, you know, use the use the term silence and darkness. It might be our title. Even understanding that some of that may have been happening, we also can see with our own eyes what she has accomplished, what she she is doing, and I don't think this issue we're having affects that part of the film. Right. Those feelings and the sense that you have in while looking at this movie and looking at these people like as they try to communicate and they and they and they succeed in communicating, gathering, having fun, learning and experiencing new things despite their the limitations that they've found themselves in and how they try to help others who who are feel even more isolated by their conditions. That is, I feel, just phenomenally br- successfully brought out. I just wish that it was brought out with a sense that their own stories, their own words, was good enough. And shame on Herzog for like thinking that his own wannabe ski jump adventures is more compelling for the subject. I don't, you know, I don't know if that was a failure of nerve on his part or or, or excess of nerve or or, or, or <laughs> no, that's right. But it's it's hubris. It is a shame that Herzog made this kind of creative decision. At least I feel that way. And as we go on for talking more of his films, we'll find this is not the last occurrence, but that will be out for a, a future movie. But 
Not the next one, though the next one does seem to play with history. And this is kind of one of Herzog's most recognizable films. It's Aguirre, The Wrath of God, made in um, 1972. It's about a small expedition of conquistadors that is heading deep into the Amazon on a raft in search of the fabled city of El Dorado, rumored to have just tons and tons of gold to be had. Between the rapids, the internal squabbles amongst themselves, and attacks from the natives, they start to get like a little more and more reluctant to go and pursue this mission. But the second-in-command, Aguirre, has some other ideas. It's a land that God, if he exists, has, has created in anger. It's the only land where, where creation is unfinished yet. Taking a close look at, at what's around us, there, there is some sort of a harmony. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. Well, wow. This film is rightly uh, Herzog's calling card and, and the film that made him a legend uh, in, in world cinema. And it, it it's right there in the opening shot. What you see when this movie starts is something that I have never seen before or since. It, it, it's absolutely magical. The mountains of the Amazons, and you see in, in long distance hundreds of Spanish conquistadors in full armor, in full regalia, marching single file down, uh, down this mountain and up a second mountain, and out of the clouds, which are actually right there as Herzog is filming, it is both a shot of amazing beauty and also something that introduces us to the main problem of the film, which is that this is about a group of people who are somewhere they should not be. Right. The ideas of Feta Morgana's uh, uh, head-popping tourists get the epic treatment in this film. <laughs> Man is where he does not belong. And boy, does that first image bring that out. The sheer staggering immensity of this landscape and the the pitiful ant-like nature of the humans attempting to traverse it is just brought up really really well how well i mean in fact i just noticed that it's brought up so well that i'm start talking like herzog <laughs> in describing the scene <laughs> and i think like it's actually an explicit theme i this is kind of like probably the biggest manifestation to me of herzog's whole idea that like wow what's humanity doing here we have this world of nature all around us and we think we're in control but it can be so easy for us to be just smacked down by our own environment. Well, and it's not just humanity, though. It's the idea of imperialism and conquerors and bringing uh, all these accoutrements of civilization into a, a place that is unfriendly to it. The, how these people must have been 
so hot in all that armor, in all this, uh, carrying the flags, carrying, uh, there are two women in the group who are both... They're being carried uh, being on a carried, carriage, yes. and other people mm-hmm. have to, like, carry them while they're waist-deep in some horrid muck, and they have to be carrying this carriage at the same time. Right. <laughs> and so now introduced to, to this environment is a different kind of force of nature. Uh, Aguirre is played by Klaus Kinski, who will work with Herzog repeatedly and is one of, uh, one of film's most uh, unique presences. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and his, his presence here is phenomenally malevolent. He, like, I think from the first shot of him, you just, like, feel the, just the evil emanating from his form. And this is a guy who is... It's not even that he's up to no good, but it's that he has a big, grander scheme in mind, and he will do whatever he, whatever is necessary. And the biggest danger, yeah, you're you're so right. <laughs> the, one of the biggest dangers of this group is that they have Kinski's Aguirre in this raft with them. <laughs> and that they made the mistake of making him second in command, which is a place he will not tolerate being. So, mu- so much of Aguirre is wordless. And what you're seeing in Kinski's eyes are something that, you know, the, the theme of madness would often in other films be brought out in the dialogue and in what happens. But here, and this is certainly a reason that despite them having a famously uh, raucous uh, director-actor relationship is why I think he keeps going back to Kinski is because you cannot reproduce the look in that man's eyes. It, it's something that is authentic, that is absolutely fitting to the kind of characters he portrays. Right. The dwarfs and even dwarfs started small. You don't get any sense of them as, as people. But Kinski had this remarkable quality of acting crazy, but not in a way which makes you a distance and you just point and look at the crazy guy. But to show you the reasons for his madness, especially in, especially in this movie, like because, and part of it is because this is one of the most effective movies of giving you, which is ironic considering the anti-documentary ranting we did earlier. This is one of the best movies of making you feel like you are there in um, uh, like hundreds of years in the past mm-hmm. in the middle of this jungle, this thick jungle with just onrushing water and 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 mud and wild things and strange noises and and there's no respite from go- from going into the from going into the jungle or following in the water you feel trapped in this open area in a way few films have ever really done and there there is no doubt that Francis Ford Coppola was taking notes oh, because for sure. when you watch Apocalypse Now, and which is no slouch, which films its uh, jungle scenes and uh, brilliantly, it is obvious that he has studied Aguirre and looked at how the menace of the jungle to a group on a raft uh, can be portrayed. Um, 
And, you know, the same might even be said of uh, John Borman uh, in Deliverance. Uh, Aguirre uh, oh, nice one. <laughs> was uh, the forerunner of, of all these things because re- it creates real suspense because we don't see the Indians in the jungle, but we know they're there. You know, occasionally uh, people are killed by arrows coming out, seemingly out of nowhere. Yeah. And, and, and Herzog is masterful at doing this uh, in a suspenseful way. Way to, so that we don't know where the threat is coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Apocalypse now owes so much to the raw material of madness and folly, human folly that Aguirre brings out. You know, I mean, I'm, I look back over over his earlier films, and boy, like I think the things he was. He had attempted with not a whole lot of success in dwarfs, like just really manifests itself quite nicely here because on this raft, they literally make a whole floating society. It has its own king. <laughs> it has a, it has a horse on a raft, which is its own. It's a great image all its own. And like there's representatives of like the uh, Indian population who have been enslaved by these conquistadors. Uh, there is an African American person on the raft who's like, who's, whose um lower status is is like used in like an exploitative way but one that's explicitly exploitative by the conquistadors to try to like to try to like scare off the natives right because the idea is that they had never seen a black man before so yes. the 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 sight of a have they have him take off his shirt the sight sight of a of a black man would supposedly scare them right so it's a whole like it's a whole like floating society all headed to this unknown and possibly non-existent destination but all driven on like this river of greed by that flows through almost everyone else, uh, everyone in the party that that's on this raft because what they are searching for is gold in the uh, mythical uh, lost city of El Dorado, which uh, they are going to sacrifice everything for something that isn't even real. And it's very interesting how these different aspects of society are are used, because when Aguirre takes over and takes the uh, leader of the expedition prisoner, he immediately anoints not himself, but uh, someone else of uh, noble blood to be king. And not not realizing he's being used, he makes the mistake of starting to act like a king and greedily hoards every bit of food and everything for himself. Yeah. Uh, and then by the same token... You have the uh, the priest representing the clergy, yeah. Also, pretty much uh, up to no good. The uh, uh, wife of the uh, former expedition head, who, right. who is now being held prisoner, thinks, thinks that he she can turn to uh, the clergy for help, but he he will be on the side of what he would probably describe as the manifest destiny. Well, he's right. It's not even that, to me, it's not even that, like, the priest is up to no good. It's that no good will come of him Mm -hmm. because he actually, in kind of a very scathing take on it, he the priest effectively tells this lady... You know, I kind of think religion's going to support the strong person here. Right. <laughs> it's like, now that sentiment is just, like, really on the nose, I guess. But, like, his level of ineffectiveness of 
uh, or the ineffectiveness of the religion he is touting to go and mitigate matters on this particular environment is is an interesting note on what's happened during the course of this movie. And all throughout is the threat of Aguirre and what he will do, like, is always looming, you know? And whereas, whereas like, he, his motives, they may seem just general ambition, in other words, I'll lead this expedition and get glory, but it really goes to a one hell of an end point by, by the end. And Even to the point where the noblewoman decides she'd rather take her chances in the jungle among the natives than... Spend another s- moment right. on this raft. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that sense, my gosh, that sense of things like falling like out of control is so well done in this movie just uh just because it's the levels of societal behavior and the absurdity of maintaining societal behavior is slowly peeled away like like there's a scene where the king the the would-be king of of this el dorado territory <laughs> that he wrote wrote for himself mm-hmm. is eating at a big banquet table and then he just uh, has this bucking horse just causes some problems. So as he goes and gets kicked by the horse, all the other people who've been scrounging around for their last bits of corn immediately rush to the table and just start snarfing up as much as they can. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> also, the fact that even though this is a raft that's on the water, it still has its own outhouses. Also, found pretty, <laughs> pretty, cra- pretty crazy. Right. But a- an interesting contrast is like the level of madness is delivered with such authority by the end of this film in a way that does not work for me for Apocalypse Now. Look at how Apocalypse Now has Marlon Brando spouting a bunch of nonsense philosophy that he thought up him that he you know he thought up off the top of his head. And it's kind of interesting and mildly disturbing in but you look at Kinski and Kinski is a channel for this madness. He is a guy who goes and takes the level of greed and uh, and human hubris and kind of gives the ultimate mission statement right at the near the end of the movie he says i am a kire i'm the wrath of god if i say command the birds to fall out of the trees they're going to fall out of the trees jesus like jules winfield from pulp fiction did not have <laughs> as much of a declaration of badassery in turn and 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 while still recognizing how completely wrong he is than what kinski breaks out you know and he goes further to say uh in what must be meant as an echo of uh, the nazis to say i will marry my daughter who he has actually only recently been killed on on this uh, raft i will marry my daughter and we will spawn a pure race yeah and so you know coming from new german cinema that is an absolute critique but this is what i i meant when we were talking about strozik in uh signs of life earlier using his fireworks to battle the sun you know there's a certain level of madness that kinski brings to uh, agire throughout the film yeah but by the end of the film he is so deluded. He is in such a state that he has become very literally the king of monkeys. See, there is a case where, like, there is a case where Herzog's use of animals works wonderfully because mm-hmm. he is a god to a god among men. Would not all men just be monkeys, just animals for him to use as his whim? And in fact, 
They have been animals that Agiri has used as his whim throughout the movie, right? Right. And usually I don't particularly care for films about madness, partly because I think they can become too, you know, reducible. In other words, it's too easy for you sometimes, or for me, to go and say, okay, well, that guy's just crazy. <laughs> Clearly, you know, that, that person, he has a, me- there's a mental defect, and so something's just amiss with that person. But in some of the most superlative films, like Taxi Driver, for example, and in this one, you, it's, they are amazingly successful how they take a person who has become, who is crazy or becomes crazy and drawing us into that world. You know, you, for how crazy his ranting is, you understand the motivations that got Aguirre to think this way. You got, you saw the, the desperate situation that caught, that may, ironically makes his mission more and more important and more and more of a godly like venture in his eyes, you know, and, the way he the way he grasps this monkey and just proclaims his dominion over it is something that you un- that you can understand and the film depicts on a great final image of ro- of spinning around like this raft as it travels down to its unknown destination and Aguirre's certain doom but it's presented as a look over his kingdom exactly and this one in particular while it's a great film uh, throughout, it, it, it probably has one of the best opening sequences and one of the best closing sequences of yes. all films. And kind of the ultimate example of, if you want to say that like a director had a mission statement, it may have been the, it's the ultimate example of Herzog's statement of ma- of the madness of human humanity. Uh, railing against nature and what what it drive and what it drives people to do, and the way loners struggle and fight against the isolation of their situation. It may not be may or may not be the best Herzog, but it kind of I think it kind of is a good candidate for the most Herzog. <laughs> good way to put it, <laughs> you know. Suddenly, a, a production company when I was sixteen wanted to produce my project. But they hadn't seen me, so I wrote letters to them because I knew it was it it was not good to show up in person, and that's why I made my first phone call at age 17. So I had to make a phone call just to to be at a distance. But it was unavoidable one day that uh, I had to see them in person, and the secretary asked me in, and there were these two depraved men behind this huge desk vile and debased and they looked at me but they didn't look at me they looked beyond me as if the father had come into town with his child but there was only the child there and and after 15 seconds with a very rude remarks from them I just turned around before I even had said a word I turned around and and started to work uh, the night shift as a welder so we look at a guy who's been isolated through his own actions, of course, and the, through the environment, and we then move into an, a film about a guy who starts in isolation and moves into a more human societal environment with his film The Enigma of Caspar Hauser in 1974. It's set in 1820s Germany, and it's a kind of about a strange man who grew up completely outside of society. And then at a certain point, his 
benefactor slash uh, mentor slash ca- uh, slash captor leaves him outside the town square. He then becomes like the talk of the community as as different members of society of that society go and uh, try to see what they can make out of him. And it also looks at how he makes an adjustment to a brand new, completely brand new world for him. You know, from from walking <laughs> to but then to art and then religion and philosophy as well. Well, uh, before we can really talk about uh, the enigma of Caspar Hauser, we have to talk about its lead actor, who is one of the most unique presences in film. He is uh, goes by the name of Bruno S., and there's um, a lot of enigma about him himself and hmm. what his situation is, because when when you see him both in film and being interviewed, there is there is no doubt he seems quite odd. But why is that? There are people who who say that he is retarded, that he is uh, somewhere on the autism scale. We don't know. That has not been made public. Herzog says that that is not the case. But what we do know about him was that he was, uh, his mother was a prostitute and he was beaten severely and mercilessly as a child to the point where he went uh, deaf for a period of time. He grew up in and out of uh, institutions, but it also became this uh, self-taught street musician. Herzog discovered him in a uh, in a documentary that was made about him and thought he was the uh, the perfect actor for this role. So so as we talk about kind of themes and plots, the underlying feel of of this film is really informed by the uniqueness of the personality of Bruno S and how he inhabits Casper Hauser. Yeah, though that's that's for sure. Uh, he is one of the more singularly unique people who ever grace a movie screen. None of the way he looks, the way he turns his head, the way he walks, the way he reacts, none of it is something that people expect a human to behave, but it's clearly not an act. It's, uh, clearly him. <laughs> um, so it doesn't, it doesn't look like a, a pretense or a pose or anything like that. It's, um, uh, this is, you're clearly looking at, in a similar way to the land of suns and darkness, you're looking at a person who is clearly a human being themselves, but there's something amiss about that. And it leads to a, a sense of mystery upon it, like which fits the story of Casper Hauser quite well. Like, what is this guy's deal? What is this guy all about? Well, it's based on a, a true story. And the question the, the film asks is, you know, what would happen if somebody grew up without any human interaction whatsoever? So we are uh, basically led to believe that he has been provided food, but no teaching, no never have, having never been outside until at the beginning of this film, he is uh, left out on his own. His captor slash benefactor makes sure to teach him some basic uh, words. He ser- he knows the word horsey because yeah. he has a toy a horse that he likes. Right. He uh, is, is he is actually has to be taught how to walk in order to leave his cell. Yeah. And then as he is sent into town and 
adopted by this uh, small town yes. uh, in the 1800s. We get to ask ourselves not only what does it mean for a man without interaction to suddenly have it, but what does it mean for the people now around him? How will they respond to this person? Right, and I think one of the one of the interesting points the movie makes is like that in Hauser they see a innocent, a blank slate upon which they can express the things that are important to them. Right, the soldier helps show watch show does a demonstration of his of the sword fighting mm-hmm. technique. You know, the, the doctors kind of treat him very clinically. It's like, oh, look at how looks what's up with his legs and so on. And and uh, the local uh, religious folk go and like um uh, start asking him like metaphysical questions. And there's even like a scientist or a a psychologist who attempts to uh, give a riddle for Casper where he goes and says, well, if you have one town where everyone always lies and another town where everyone always says the truth, how are you going to ask a particular writer so you know what town he comes from? Like, he gives a nice philosophical answer, but Hauser answers, I would ask if he's a tree frog. (laughs) (laughs) Since he's not a tree frog, if if he says he is, he's lying. (laughs) Right. One of the charming things about Hauser and and the performance is how he, he is not willing to play by the rules that are put upon him by society, by this uh, town. And the, it takes place over a few years. So while at the beginning he's you know infantile and, and, and can't really communicate, we find he is a quick study, and he, he even has this wonderful desire to learn and this frustration. He keeps telling people, well, you know, I'll never understand, you know, books like you do. I'll I, never have this level of wisdom. But it's, it, it's still something that, that's charming in this film, that because of what he was robbed of, there are things that he can't achieve, but he still wants to. Yes, that's right. That's so charming and lends such a level of empathy towards him and that you, you want him to, you want him to learn more. You want him to like get more of these like enjoyable pleasures that life has to offer. It kind of works a very similar track that what, um, than what the land of science and darkness does in this way. You're seeing, you feel such sympathy towards a uh, damaged individual and how they still persevere and they're trying to go there, and make their lives better. It's also really successful to me about like how showing this kind of level of innocence to the harshness of the world because when he hears a song like that really moves him, he just goes, this is pouring through my heart or some sort of statement. Right. It's just <laughs> so great. And then there's one moment where he, I, where it, we're meant to, in the course of the movie, see that he's experienced like physical pain, a sharp physical pain where someone holds a match to him and he just reacts, he jolts back. But he doesn't yell because he literally doesn't know to yell. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think he even just starts spontaneously crying because this is the first time that such a Right. He thing... was unaware that fire burned. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Now, I mean, I kind of take, take it that Herzog wants him to be like, in a way, like the ultimate innocent, somebody who's like outside of humanity's level of, of, of pain. Because of course, even an animal would yell back if there was fire, right? But his reaction is just like of, of pure innocence. So ironically, his tears become like just the more pure reaction because it's sort of like 
I don't know. It speaks to me kind of as it's like outside of an animal nature, you know? Right. Now, to put another twist on that, the title, The Enigma Casper of Casper Hauser, was not the original title of the film. Okay. And the actual title uh, was Every Man for Himself and God Against All. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> okay. When See, that's this film interesting. is called that... Yeah. That puts a, a, a bit of a darker spin on it. Yeah, and I don't think it's borne out by the story that you see, because because the attitudes of the townsfolk towards Casper are not malevolent for the most part. In no, fact, there there is some selfishness, but it's not malevolent selfishness. That's right, and like yeah. there's even some like there's even some soldiers who bring out a chicken to be hypnotized for yet another time. We have to keep <laughs> going back to the chickens. But yes. they they're shown uh, entering like uh, Hauser's room, and they're <laughs> laughing and boisterous. And you think what they're going to do is you expect <laughs> they're going to bully the poor unknowing how uh, Casper, but instead they use this as a kind of a opportunity to show, hey, here's something cool for chicken. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, so. Like, it's not a matter of, like, I can see Herzog of dwarfs maybe being everybody wants a piece of him, you know, and he's being, and his innocence is used for someone's benefit. But that doesn't really happen here. I don't know if it, it was brought upon because Bruno S. was such a kind of winning, charming presence in his own mm-hmm. particular weird way, but the movie seems to be quite a bit more on the positive perspective on human nature compared to his previous film, Aguirre, you know? Certainly, and Kinski and Bruno S. will kind of be opposite sides of Herzog's uh, coin. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe, yeah. Like, maybe one's the angel and one's the devil, something like that? Hmm. Yeah, or or they, they complement each other in... You know, it's funny, Brad, you bring that up, because they complement each other in really interesting ways, like how, for example, Bruno is a very rounded figure, not in terms mm-hmm. of learning. He's just, like, shaped round. And and Kinski is not a round figure. He's an angular... He's all hot, angles. Yeah. yeah, he's all angles, you know? <laughs> and then Kinski expresses everything, whereas um, Bruno S is internal. There's so much about his reactions that leave us wanting to know more about what he's what he's feeling you know which i like i want to bring back to the the holding the flame because he just there's as tears roll down his Mm -hmm. face it's more just shock that this pain kind of exists in the world more than the actual involuntary reaction you know but you really at that at that moment at least i was wondering like boy what was what 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 would it be like to feel that kind of pain for the first time. What would it be like to hear this stirring music for the first time? Or look at a, la- a great landscape? Or, or walk out through the garden, you know? And, and I think when this film is exploring those themes is when it's at its best. The ending I th- doesn't work quite as well to me, uh, partially because of what actually happened to the historic Casper Hauser, which is that he was mysteriously uh, stabbed to death. Mm-hmm. What the film posits is that he was attacked uh, a number of times and finally killed by the uh, same shadowy figure who uh, took him as a child and uh, and kept him uh, all all these years? He's he's always dressed in in full black regalia. Right. This may be part of also where the enigma of the title comes from because we never get to know much about him. But th- this particular subplot, I've always found kind of the the unsatisfying aspect of the film, whereas everything that actually involves Casper Hauser's growth and integration into society is is just done so wonderfully. Mm. 
I am in agreement with you about the the dark figure about what what his mentor is doing because it's a very sub standard subplot. <laughs> like for one thing, his motivations for stabbing uh, him are don't make any sense. Well, uh, I don't think we get any motivation for that, do we? He leaves a note saying, in effect, you know, I stabbed him so that you don't know who I am. I will now tell you who I am. And he says who he is, but he does it by giving three letters, to which I'm just left very confused going, wait a minute. Did I just see in a movie about a guy who triple crossed <laughs> himself? Wait, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> we understood it better before they tried to explain it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And and unfortunately, the film goes astray in a couple of other particular moments by the end of it, because for one thing, it has Hauser on his deathbed uh, going out and um, relating a story and ironically, it's the same offense that happened with Land of Silence and Darkness because he's relating a story about a caravan that's led by somebody. And then it cuts to a visualization of it. Whereas in, in Land of Silence and Darkness, that was explicitly told by Herzog and not this woman's story. Mm -hmm. Here, it's from a guy who literally cannot do that image because he has never had in his experience of seeing a caravan. The, the movie never gives him an idea of like looking at a book or looking at an, uh, an engraving mm -hmm. to show this image. So it is a person who literally could never see that. Hmm. That rings false, but in a level that seems eerily similar that... Hey, you know what? Herzog had this great image of a traveling caravan <laughs> through the desert. So the heck of it. Let's put it in this city, right? And then the look at society, it gets a little too extreme when you see the upper crust of society. And, and the upper crust is represented by this incredibly fey, dandy, fop caricature who would like, who would cause literally the characters in Barry Lyndon to roll their eyes and how mincing he is. Right, he wants to adopt Casper Hauser yeah. because having previously been uh, displayed in the freak show, Casper has become kind of a, uh, a figure of fame, almost like the Elephant Man yeah. was treated at, at, at certain points. And uh, yeah, so it's really a disturbing scene but i actually thought that was uh one that worked having this this horribly unpleasant character yeah. now want to utilize casper uh, for his own means yeah exactly yeah. and it's it's also because and also the social commentary is too facile you know like the Oh, look at how the upper crust that they don't they don't appreciate. Well, He's but, a but that's not inconsistent, though, with how everyone's been treating Casper. Everybody has been looking at Casper as kind of a cipher and saying, because we can imprint our values onto this person, this is how we interact with them. And so I think bringing in uh, this uh, gentry fits in with what the film has been doing. So I don't okay, necessarily I see what, have a no, problem I see what with you, that. I mean, I see what you mean. And in, in, right, in, in that environment, you're leading your life with such frivolity, then of course you're going to treat um, uh, Hauser's life with, with an equal amount of frivolity, because that's what you know, and you're, you're kind of projecting that or putting the stuff that comes to mind for you onto, onto him. And then the final image is just of a... There's a running gag through the movie about a a, a smaller-looking, weird-looking gentleman who goes and, like, is uh, spending all time accounting, uh, uh, writing things down, and uh, it ends with him, 
leaving a autopsy and then walking off into the distance. The effect is spectacularly pointless. What the what the hell is that supposed I, to be? I, I disagree. I thought it was very poignant oh, because wow, so. what has happened just before that is after Casper has died, they perform an autopsy, and you see them take his brain and dissect it, and basically just try to come up with a that that's the reason they're like oh the brain is shaped odd that must explain right why casper is like casper is yeah and you know this character then i i, I think ends on a note of kind of irony and, and whimsy about how nobody really looked too deeply into casper as an actual person so i i, I thought that ending was actually very effective Oh, okay. Now he, the particular minor characters, antics wore out his welcome. He is a one, he is a one note joke of a character to me, and having it end on him seems just a bit of a false note. Why should I follow what this guy cares about anything? Mm-hmm. But I see what you mean. It's kind of like the rosebud moment of like, hey, ultimately, for all the stuff society could throw at him, and for all the things that he learned, you know, Hauser is still fundamentally an enigma. Even science can't explain what made him, like, such a remarkable fellow and made him, you know, compelling to watch or compelling for the society and so on. So that's a pretty fair way to end it, I think. Systems of the Milky Ways have condensed into unstars. Utter blissfulness is spreading, and out of utter blissfulness now springs absurdity. This is the situation. Is the loneliness good? Yes, it is. There are only dramatic vistas ahead. The festering rankness, spelled with a capital R, the festering rankness, meanwhile, gathers once again at sea. I wrote that when I walked uh, over the hills of the Black Forest, when I walked from Munich to Paris once. It's quite strange how fantasy works and how things come out all the nonsense and all the visions now from that enigma you we we get to a movie where the enigma kind of extends almost out to an entire town the mystery in this upcoming film heart of glass in 1976 is what is none of what's a man's purpose what is the town's purpose because the theme of this movie is about a residence of a, of a small German town. Then their main industry is making a very special kind of beautiful red glass. And when the proprietor of this glass works has passed on and he is the only person who knew the method of how to make this special kind of glass, the rest of the town is at a complete loss as to what to do next. And it just results in them just being like stuck barely having any reaction to the situations that they that befall them and kind of like they're sleepwalking just a bit <laughs> there is once again something outside what we can know from watching the the film itself that is either incredibly important to know or maybe you don't want to know because it will change how you view this film but i don't think the film can be discussed without discussing uh, this particular aspect uh, of it, which is that Werner Herzog hypnotized 
almost everyone in the cast throughout the production, throughout each of their scenes, they are acting, and, and and Herzog is very serious about this. This is not some kind of gimmick. It's not something that was made up for publicity. He very seriously uh, considers himself a hypnotist and did so. And as a result, the characters all have this glazed look about them, uh, like you, like sleepwalking was a good way to put it. They are all speaking in very hushed tones. Um, yeah, it's kind of ironic yeah. about the mm-hmm. hypnosis because one of the criticisms of the movie is that while you're watching it, you are getting sleepy. <laughs> well, well, well. The, Herzog tells a story that uh, he had originally wanted to have a prologue where he hypnotizes the audience that's watching the film wow. before uh, before beginning the film, and then he realized that you know his power was way too great; it would be too dangerous to actually hypnotize an audience. That's what he but, said. Yes, yeah, he said. <laughs> Gotta love her side. That scene. There is like your PT Barnum with a side order of like you know Frank Castle, right? The the film the theater operator who it, ran the Tingler's Electroshock in the seats. Exactly. But <laughs> the film begins with kind of its own version of an audience hypnotism, which is a speeded up uh, shot of clouds rolling across a uh, Bavarian valley. And this is a beautiful sight. It's eerie. We see the uh, the main character who is kind of a Nostradamus-like prophet, a mad prophet, speaking his predictions of death and destruction. But what we're seeing at, at the very beginning are these amazingly beautiful uh, shots. Hmm. Maybe calling him Nostradamus would be a little more <laughs> uh, on the nose because of uh, of like both his um, very tactless use of his. Uh, his fortunes and like what eventually happens to him. Um, this is a really interesting transition film for me on when looking over on Herzog, because whereas Herzog's previous films had um, gone to a level where, and especially in the case of like Aguirre is a level where like you feel you are there in the world mm-hmm. and in, but the world being the real world, the real world uh, even even in how alien certain things in uh, Feta Morgana look, it's you you do feel oh this is some part of the desert right, but here is I think one of the first cases I think of of Herzog composing a movie world mm-hmm. the way the way conventional films do like it's it doesn't exist of the real world to call it magical belies all the hardship that uh, people are encountering there but it is feel mystical i guess you know like a a distinct different place you know and he and herzog to me actually in this one he's actually exploring the conventional tools he's up into uh, of filmmaking you know in other words playing with like cinematography making like different portions of the screen light or dark Mm -hmm. and to put up a mood you know and in in some cases like when you finally see this glass that has been the centerpiece of this town for so long it's like lit in a special way so it feels like it's glowing with this red light yeah, the, these are beautiful shots, and even more beautiful are the scenes of the glass blowing themselves, which we see uh, professional glass blowers 
creating these uh, works of art, not, by the way, under the influence of hypnotism, because that oh, would have been very, very <laughs> da- dangerous. <laughs> that, uh, yes. But but it also made me wonder if You maybe, are a fire hazard. Yes. <laughs> you are a fire <laughs> Go ahead. It, it also made me wonder if Herzog might actually have been wanting to make a documentary about glass blowing and this was kind of a a replacement for that because what we didn't mention about uh fata morgana is that originally he had wanted that to be a science fiction film oh is that uh, right and and abandoned that idea for what it became so it is within herzog's game plan to kind of shift his ideas around like that wow you know that's that's really that's a dude that's a really cool point i mean I guess his quest for this kind of ecstatic truth means that, like, he he treats documentary and fiction, but he's more way more fluid upon upon it, like jumping from one to another. Than- right, because the glass blowing stuff is documentary for all practical purposes. There are some actors uh, in the scene as well, but the glass blowers are really. Uh, really doing that. It's worth it, I think, to emphasize how how much Aguirre made you feel like you were there, like in akin to something like how Andre Rublev and Marketa Lazarova mm-hmm. were so good at get, making you feel. My God, this is like this could have been if they had film hundreds of years ago. This is what this is what it would be like, you know. So he's trafficking in sensations and feelings and experiences that feel totally real, but are they? While I think perhaps another filmmaker might explicitly question, like Lars Trier, I think, kind of does this in a drama way. Like he does scenes and, and sequences where you're supposed to you're supposed to ask, wait, has this gone too far? Is this a little too much? You know, but it's clear that it's a person that the movie is asking the question. But I think Herzog does not go in that direction. He's like, this is an effect. This is a a sense, a feeling a true feeling, and I want to bring this out to the audience, and I don't care what form it is. I just want to give it to an audience. Right. And one of the feelings he's working with here is an apocalyptic one, because for this town, the man who could make the ruby glasses dying means they no longer uh, have the uh, prime industry. But then if you combine that with the prophecies of the young man living outside of town yeah. who is warning of gloom and doom everywhere, you expand that to almost a kind of end-of-the-world feeling. Yeah. So for these people who know nothing outside of their town, the end of their town is like the end of the world. Yeah, and I, it depicts this, in a, and I feel in a really nice way, and in ending sequence, which puts that end-of-the-world quality makes it explicit literally in the old school end of the world where there's like nothing but ocean like it gets set out in an island you see some people at this island and they want to go on a journey so they go on a forlorn little rowboat they think that they're they need to reach some land but there's no land in sight but then the then this is getting narrated and right we should the- mention that this has nothing to do with the the plot of the story with right. the characters in the story. This is this is added on as epilogue. That's right, but it is a it is a heck of a nice epilogue because it do, it gives you the feeling that you just described about like how this is just it is a loss. It is the end end point. And as as they like roll off in the distance and they say the narrator says, "Well, it's be, 
because the birds are still around. The camera pan, there's a wonderful move where it moves up. So now, now the guys are out of the picture and the robots out of the picture and the water and the horizon are out of the picture. And it's just these birds. And in a way, it kind of does a natural version of what the fireworks, uh, were at the Herzog's first feature film because it's sense of like, this is, it's transient. It's all, mm -hmm. you know, it's transient. It's scattered. And uh, it might indicate something, but it might indicate nothing, <laughs> nothing at all, you know. Speaking of nothing at all, though, do you think that uh, the hypnotic thing was both effective in terms of that the people were actually hypnotized and that, like, it's effective at bringing off this sense of, like, directionlessness for the, the residents of this town? It was possibly too effective, <laughs> uh, by the way, the, uh, the, the lead character, the, pro the, the prophet was not hypnotized because Herzog wanted to indicate that he had some level of vision that the others were lacking, but he actually acts in the exact same way as the hypnotized actors. That's and, true. You know, I wouldn't have guessed. It, it's fascinating. The behind, the behind the scenes story of this is absolutely fascinating. The idea of hypnotizing actors and thematically linking that uh, to a film is fascinating. But while actually watching it, I, I found the the process disengaged me be because it succeeded too well. Because the 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 hypnosis has made these characters so alienated from uh, recognizable human emotion that. It makes it a situation where I think we as an audience are also removed from the action of the film. A, a good example is probably one of the more memorable uh, sequences uh, in a bar where these uh, two old friends are having their uh, drunken arguments. Um, but again, because it's under hypnosis, they're doing it in a way that is just very, very strange. No stranger, though, than when one of them just takes his beer glass and smashes it on the head of the other gentleman, <laughs> yeah. who does not react a bit, again, because hypnosis, probably also because they weren't using a real glass, but <laughs> then, his, then he goes, and with the same lack of reaction, just pours his beer on the other fellow's yeah. head. Yeah, that is, that. to me, I think that's like, that may be Herzog's biggest laugh-out-loud moment, and, and uh, for the wrong reasons. It's just watching a guy with a blank expression get a whole beer stein smashed to bits against his head with no reaction <laughs> is such so, so stooge-esque ridiculousness, and that, and that his reaction is actually kind of like perfect to just, no, I'll just pour beer on your head. <laughs> and, and they go on to uh, threaten to kill each other, and actually one does when they both fall off a ledge, and the one who falls on top of the other survives, but is then so distraught that at a later scene, he brings the corpse of his friend into the bar to dance with. Which, metaphorically, that kind of does work, because... Mm -hmm. If you don't have an industry in that town anymore, I mean, you've heard of the concept of dead towns where the main industry has left and, and yet people are still live there and they're going through them and they're going through the motions, just like how this guy is going through the motions with his dead comrade, you know? Right. For those who've watched the films of uh, Bellatar, there is somewhat of a similarity 
in uh, in the kind of pacing and the sensibilities and, dist- and distance from characters that Tar uses, I believe, to much greater effect yeah. and in a much more epic way. But I think uh, a movie like this kind of hints at that direction that that Tar eventually took to its uh, logical extreme. Yeah, that sense of people who find a sense of purpose that are wrenched out of their lives and the meaning's been wrenched out of their lives, but they themselves are left. Mm -hmm. That's something that's kind of informed a lot of Tar's work as well. Heart of Glass is a very close approximation of that same kind of feeling that uh, Bella Tar brings out. But something that hits me that's really funny about the movie, aside from the glass smashing against your uh, head, is that it's actually two different movies because it's a movie, there's a movie part, and there's a meta movie part, you mm-hmm. know? Like, if you, if you know about the hypnosis, if you don't know about the hypnosis, you'll have one reaction. But if you do know about the hypnosis, because it's such a weird thing to do and such a thing that you think that when you see someone, you'll know if he's hypnotized or not, you're looking at the movie a totally different way because instead of, like, looking at the actors or the story... You're like looking, well, is he hypnotized? Is he doing this because he's hypnotized? It's like as if you see like a movie, a conventional Hollywood movie, but then the moments before you enter the theater, someone tells you, did you know one of these actors were murdered <laughs> right after this movie was made? And then you're just like, watch, well, who, who got murdered? <laughs> who got murdered? Mm-hmm. Who got murdered? It's like, this is a case where I think like you may find the story of hypnosis compelling. I'd have rather off not known that because... While it thematically fits the movie, it puts me in a mind frame which doesn't help to go, hey, is this guy hypnotized? Is this really, is this guy really doing it, you know? See, that's not a kind of question that I, that, that serves this movie's story. If it was about a cult, mm-hmm. that would be interesting. You see what I'm saying? Because then you would wonder, because then you're questioning about the suggestibility of a person fits in with the suggestibility of the cult member, you know? This this considerably less so. Yeah, it would be fascinating to hear from somebody who has seen this film without knowing about the hypnotism. I think both of us like heard about this whole hypnotism. It's it's a marketing gimmick. It was uh, it was hey, it's Herzog's hypnotism movie, mm-hmm. and I actually think the movie was the movie for its slower pacing and uh, and some nabulastic characters would have been better served just to take it on its own terms, no matter what, instead of treating it as a whack-a-mole guessing game as to hey, who, who got hypnotized now, you know? So we go from like Heart of Glass, like it's look at like 
what would people do if their society can no longer like support them or support what they do? And then take a look at that particular question about one particular guy and what happens if two different societies don't support what he would like to do. This is in his film Stroshek from 1977. Stroshek is, turns out, is also the name of the main character, uh, who's once again played by Bruno S. Stroshek is trying to, like, make a life for himself after his release from prison. But various developments in Germany find that his chances of getting by are rapidly diminishing. So he thinks that maybe moving to Wisconsin will improve the fortunes of him and his girlfriend. Spoiler alert, they do not. So unlike in uh, Casper Hauser, where Bruno S., in his own unique way, was playing a character very much not of his background... From what I could tell from uh, interviews and looking at the film, uh, Bruno in in Strozik is very much Bruno S.'s actual personality in all its unique glory. And I I really do think it's glory. I I love this guy. And I think (laughs) that in that somebody's enjoyment of this film may be very subjective as far as just how how charmed you are by uh, by Bruno S, and and it did it for me. It did it from his very first scene. He's uh, getting out of prison, and they're going through the forms to uh, to get him released. And so they they ask him his full name, and he reacts. And I, and, and I can't do justice to his cadence which even in german is is obviously extremely unique to bruno hmm. he says uh have you been dropped on the head you know my last name <laughs> and it's it's kind of this skewed version of reality that he brings to everything that makes this film special even outside of the themes uh herzog brings to it because you have a film that just could not have been made were it not for Bruno's unique personality. No, you're completely right that your mileage on Stroshek is in direct proportion to how much you find uh, Bruno as an endearing and, uh, and I kind of think, relatable, a relatable figure. It is a combination of a stranger in a, a stranger in a strange land, where where the land itself is strange and the person inhabiting it is is strange simultaneously, um, and so the more I think you can get a better response out of it, the more you feel for Bruno S and his situation. I have to say I didn't because Herzog's use of the two different settings. I think he was just kind of like making a pretty decent point upon like how a change of environment wouldn't uh wouldn't necessarily couldn't necessarily help you because things are kind of tough all over but when you look at bruno s and you see his reactions on things i come across as like you know what this guy kind of has like a couple strikes against him because he's just too weird for the for the straight world for sure, and and that's the point it's making, that there are these uh, you know square pegs trying to get into circular holes, and there are some people 
who are just so different that society has no idea what to do with them. And, and Bruno is, is that both in German and American society. You know, he um, gets involved with a prostitute named Ava, uh, whose pimps continually torture the two of them and cause them to... Uh, have to leave, and and one of Bruno's uh, cohorts has a uh, contact in America, in Wisconsin, who uh, can get them uh, jobs. And then once the action moves to uh, to America, something really interesting happens because we have been seeing Herzog film all these exotic disturbing strange locations all across the globe and who would have thought that one of the most alien places he could find would be wisconsin yeah yeah wisconsin is um uh, <laughs> can be a kind of a weird place in some places like as any visitor to the house on the rock uh, has uh been able to attest right but mm -hmm. to have the very environment of the trees and the landscape feel weird and dangerous <laughs> it, that's it, kind of a different take on it it's shot in winter but until the end there's very little snow so the desolation of winter without the snow has its own unique landscape also it was filmed in the town that notorious uh, serial killer ed gein came from oh is, was that uh, a deliberate move uh, on it was that was how mm. her that was what her attracted herzog to the area and so this kind of bojo of location that you know worked in the sahara that worked in the amazon also also works here because we contrast what uh, happens when they first arrive in the United States, which is they, they go up uh, the skyscrapers in New York and see the vast American dream before right. them. And, and, and Bruno has this, I think, very charming habit of taking a... Uh, having a, a little horn he, he carries around with him that he will uh, blow in celebration and say something like, uh, this, is, this is in celebration of Bruno coming to America. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, wonderful Brunoism uh, closer to the end of the film. <laughs> Brunoism. Yes, when he, uh, he creates this, this model and says, says to Eva, this model represents... How Bruno feels <laughs> the the hopelessness. He he doesn't put it that way, but yeah. uh, but but again, he 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 puts it in such a charming way that this man has gone to the trouble to create a model just to explain how he feels. It's right. so charming. That's 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 cute, and like it does it does speak for him that he is one of the few people who can like refer to himself in the third person and have it be a winning feature. Right. It's yeah. It it acts. It does not come off egotistical, which just about every other person who uses right themselves in. The third person does yeah it's not even in an ego kind of way either it's just like you know just the thing he does and you're just like well he just needs to express his own exaltation and so that's that's just how mm -hmm. he manifests it yeah oh and and bruno in what seems to me would be something he would do takes to wearing a cowboy hat now that uh, he's in america <laughs> right right yes <laughs> Yeah, pretty fun like appropriation thing of like uh, there there's a here's a nice American uh symbol of showing showing how much of a, a citizen of the US I would like to be or a re resident of the US 
pardoner, you know. So this is like kind of Herzog's most social political critical work, obviously being set in the present day instead of uh, uh, older times. And then it's, he seems to me to level his sights against uh, America, or rather the myth of America. He is... He has a very different attitude than his contemporary Wim Wenders does about the grand American experiment. There is no romanticizing it at all here. And because they are outsiders, all three, Bruno, Eva, and and his little old man friend are, are all outsiders. And the language barrier means that the, the American dream ends up beyond them. There are a couple visits from a, a banker who, uh, oblivious to not speaking the same language, tries to explain to them the kind of money they owe. But then things really turn bad, and Eva, Eva leaves him as uh, runs off with some truck drivers. And the, the second scene where the, the banker, ignoring all language barriers, just tells him that hey you're shit out of luck basically yeah is really the beginning of kind of the uh, tragic part of the film and then when the mobile home is driven off and he's just left looking at the space it used to be in right is incredibly poignant yeah bruno s's character is dismantled like like uh a very slow dismemberment of a bug in <laughs> in the second half of uh, this film, you know, just opportunities just get more and more distance. The more the more he tries, the further away they seem to be getting. And whereas before, it's kind of seems like he has a you know surrogate kind of family going on. That just gets that gets taken away, and and yeah, by and then by the end, there's just. And he's in the the same place as a certain um, uh, conquistador, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing. There's nothing but the wilderness of his own, like of his own isolation, right? But then it does this kind of turn to like the ending sequence, which to me is kind of like the best part of Stroshek. Like again, I'm not between his strange behavior and the fact that he has alcohol. He was an alcoholic. Even in the most forgiving societies, he could have a tough time with his life, you know? To me, he never had a chance. So if he never had a chance in the first place, I do not feel the tragedy of him losing it. However, at the end sequence, basically, Bruno's character goes full-on crazy and hides away from the cops in in an abandoned amusement park. And that park... After after a, a robbery That's right. in which he uh, absconds with a frozen chicken. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but when when you get to the amusement park, I kind of think that it is Herzog's political version of the Lady of Shanghai's ending of like <laughs> saying the American dream is a fun house mirror of endless nightmares. It's a joke where people's frivolity and people's entertainment and people's cheap thrills hides the dark reality underneath. He he may have even outdone the monkeys in Aguirre in showing a film depiction of a world gone mad. It might be the most effective depiction 
of that I've ever seen in any film because a few things happen at once. Uh, he's got his frozen chicken. He's got a shotgun. <laughs> he leaves his car driving in a circle and gets out of it until it's driving in an endless circle. Yeah. He gets to this abandoned amusement park where he turns on these little contraptions that where animals are playing musical instruments. Probably most notable is a dancing chicken and then gets onto a ski lift. We hear in the distance after he goes around a couple times a uh, gunshot to indicate he has killed himself. This description does no bit of justice to the editing of this sequence. The way it builds is absolutely masterful. The use of music, the way all these things are contrasted uh, with each other to create an absolute nightmare. Right. I, I want to quote the, the last line of the movie because it encapsulates the uh, just the, the ridiculousness, the madness of the situation, which, of course, is what Herzog has been going for all along. The, the uh, policeman who now finds uh, the situation and stumbles upon it basically says... We've got a truck on fire, can't find the switch to turn the ski lift off, and can't stop the dancing chicken. Send an electrician. <laughs> if if that doesn't sum it up, I don't know what does. Yeah. It's interesting how like he's bringing like these elements that he had introduced in his dwarf movie with the because also features a car going around in an endless circle with no one at the wheel mm -hmm. and a lot of and a lot of activity via chickens <laughs> right but whereas the earlier movie spread it out over an hour and a half here it's basically this 10 the minute yeah. final segment yep. that has been earned it doesn't come out of nowhere <laughs> this scene wouldn't have the power it does if it was just a short film, yeah. it's all been building to this. Right. And the the very final sequence, uh, after the last line has been said, is, I have to admit, you know, some kind of mad genius level move of showing an apocalypse. Because it's basically a full frame of this dancing chicken. And, and the chicken is, in fact, dancing to this kind of, like, corny hoot nanny thing which has a uh, person not saying any words but going Woo! Mm -hmm. at various <laughs> points at the song and while this it is very upbeat and festive and probably kind of maniacal in its in its up-tempo nature and this chicken is just the uh, the chickens as its beak is opening and his head is jerking wide-eyed back and forth but it's dancing it's dancing it's like it just brings out this crazy sense of like how Herzog thinks of the country of the U.S. Just a bunch of unblinking, unthinking, hooting, hollering, foolish animal just dancing and strutting its life away, and with with apparently no end in sight to the the nonsense that it's perpetuating. You know. Well, well, you know, what with all that being true, I feel like Herzog is making. You know, he has made his comment on the American dream, but these are themes that he's been utilizing throughout 
his films to talk about humanity in general. So I don't see this movie as in any way an anti-U.S. movie. Mm. I think I think it's cautionary about the American dream, but I think he's running into all the same kinds of trouble back in uh, in Germany. Um, sure. So sure, but the German stuff was like more urban, more adult. And then by virtue of, like, the fact that you're visiting a theme park, kind of show that, like, well, at least in this environment where he's going, he's, it's more childlike. It's more infantile mm-hmm. in, in, in the things that, that interest this new world of his, you know? And then just to get back to the very idea of the dancing chicken dancing to a hootenanny, would someone have thought that in Germany? Maybe. Maybe they just like hypnotizing chickens. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but the fact that the song is a clear, like a country-esque kind of song, it's meant to kind what? of be a quintessentially, and that's the, that's the last image you see in the movie. It kind of gets the makes a sense that it's more explicitly American, but what it definitely is is apocalyptic. Right, just the sense of like, as the saying goes, of a, a song of sound and fury that's signifying nothing, but it's never so maniacally enjoyable and delirious as shown here. You know, <laughs> it's another example of how Herzog can do a great ending and also find the most random thing you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Right, right. In fact, and I'll have to be honest, I couldn't have imagined the dancing uh, chicken dance into a hoot any song until I saw her song showing. <laughs> so it's outside you, of You my know, we're probably fortunate that we did not, we're not able to envision that before yes. it was presented to us in a film. Exactly right. So uh, you have to expect these things and you have to be uh, aware that there are huge challenges out there and sometimes there are bigger Sometimes they are less dramatic, and uh, well, it's I, I have the full gamut. Uh, I've been shot at, I mean seriously, and I had to uh, dye eleven thousand laboratory rats from white into gray. How do you do this? You see, uh, and nobody has experience with eleven thousand rats, so you have to learn it quickly on the run. So after this film we encounter a very interesting question we can ask for Herzog. How is a dude who's so obsessed with nature going to address the supernatural? And he tries this in his adaptation of the classic Bram Stoker story in Nosferatu, the Vampire, in 1979. It stars Kinski, uh, guess who? (laughs) And is pretty faithful to Stoker's original story, but it's a great example of how you can have the same story can be used as a launching point for multiple different perspectives and and to have multiple different themes because while the story and the beats and the plot is basically the same, the tone of it turns out to be quite different than what we expect from a Dracula or a vampire story, especially these days. Right, and it's very particular not just in adapting the Dracula story as it has been so many times, but specifically the uh, classic 1922 F.W. Murnau uh, film Nosferatu, which many consider to be the first horror film, the film that invented the language of horror. And Herzog has said that he wanted to 
take on a project like this because, as as we mentioned at the beginning of, of this conversation, he felt that because of the Nazi regime, there were no filmmaking fathers for his generation, but there were filmmaking grandfathers, and F.W. Murnau was head of the class of that. So he wanted to make a, a film faithful to Murnau, but also faithful to his own vision as a director. And one of the most interesting things he does is not to make it a horror film while repeating so many of the visual motifs of uh, the original Nosferatu. There are no jump scares. There are no moments where we're actually supposed to be frightened uh, of, of the vampire. Instead, he does a very interesting, interesting thing along with Kinski and makes possibly the most sympathetic Dracula we've come across. Hmm, the most sympathetic Dracula. Definitely is a case where, like, Herzog's Nosferatu is the first case, I think until maybe let the right one in, where you were meant to pity the vampire, to make him is a poor, unfortunate creature instead of just, like, a force for you to be frightened and feel threatened by. Right, and that's really w what I mean by, by sympathy, not that uh, you are on the side of the vampire seeking to uh, kill everyone around them for their blood, but the fact that it's a curse. And Kinski has, uh, through both his acting and his makeup, now has such uh, haunted eyes Again, the the makeup is reminiscent of, of Max Schreck's from the original. But when he describes living forever, it's not as the glamorous vampire of Bela Lugosi or Frank Langella. It's as this rat-like creature where you, you really believe that, and, and he says outright, what I really want is to be able to die. <laughs> I'm tempted to say that like I'm on your I'm on your side with that buddy. <laughs> um no, it's not the I I do have a kind of one significant issue with this film mm -hmm. in that like by making him look like Count von Orlock from the uh from Renault's film what before was strange just to me looks goofy as all hell. He has these giant two front buck teeth and his wide eyes are constantly darting back and forth like a chipmunk you would see at the park trying to go and uh, like get a nut and scurry off. And this is a case where Herzog's filmmaking technique kind of unfortunately emphasizes the weird quality in a case that like pushes it to a goofy level, whereas Murnau was careful to hide Orlock in the shadows, to have him only have a scant appearance, and to literally give him a hat for one thing in the earlier scenes, to, mm -hmm. so his supernatural nature was not readily evident. But here, like, when Kinski appears, he's mostly brightly lit, and and the sequences go on and on, so you're constantly seeing him, and you're just like, oh god, this guy looks stupid. <laughs> Uh, and that I, ruins obviously ruins a lot of the effect of the movie for me. I had none of those reactions. 
I do think the effect of the the fangs being up front instead of more traditionally on the side does neuter him a bit. But again, it for me it, the the effect wasn't silly or laughable. The effect was to make him more pitiable. That this is a vampire whose form can't even inspire the kind of terror that we're uh, used to from you know traditional vampire films. So, and the other thing that the placement of the teeth does is connects him to the rats which yeah. are the other uh, motif of the film and possibly its greatest set piece is that as the the ship comes from Transylvania to uh land I, I think this is Germany in this case right. um the crew is dead. This is the, the traditional Dracula story. But what's new here is the emphasis on the uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of rats that scurry off the ship. And the, this this film must have had quite the rat wrangler to, to, to make right. all this happen. Yeah. And the rats invade the town, spreading the plague. Yes. So, you know, everywhere now you see, you see these, these hundreds of rats and the coffins build up. These aren't even victims of Nosferatu. Yeah. These are victims of the plague. Yeah. Because what's often implied, but not stated as outright here, is that vampirism could be viewed as a uh, a symbol of of the plague well, but they here were. that is that 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 that's stated outright and there's these amazing scenes in the town square two of two, two of them one has uh this procession of coffins and somebody asks well where's the police chief dead where's the mayor dead yeah and then there's this insane version of the last supper where people you know talk about <laughs> right. apocalyptic uh people realizing that the, the town is once again literally dying try to uh, hold a a party <laughs> of yeah. all things while the rats are scurrying about all around them that's such a great point i mean because we've seen through his earlier films upon the idea this kind of futility of, of human beings trying to be trying to continue on with their merry way despite the fact that the environment is closing in on them like from Stroshik's maniacal musical stuff at the, near the end of that film to um to the um guy and the raft eating a big buffet as it's, as this threadbare thing is floating down a river mm-hmm. you know and to like the denizens of uh, a town in heart of glass who just continue carousing and even continue dancing after their partners has long since left the scene, quote unquote, right? Like these people want to just keep recreating the rituals and the things they know about, familiar about in the face of an apocalyptic situation. That is something where I really like what Nosferatu is doing. It seems that like that he is really effective at bringing upon like the original threat of vampirism, mm-hmm. which a long time ago, before Bela Lugosi, their vampirism was, was, yes, was in fact a metaphor for people with disease and carriers of disease. That's why they were associated with, with rats and bats and, and other, and other such creatures. 
And through Lugosi's and other subsequent films, it's been morphed into some sort of sexy European, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know what, where, where the heck that came from, and but that's the prevailing view on vampirism. But this definitely harkens back to not just it's the roots of the vampire story, but what caused the ideas of vampirism. Ironically, like a plague, it goes to where patient zero of where the origins, it's the origin story of vampirism, mm-hmm. not vampires, the origin story of why people believed in vampires, because <laughs> this environment, the plague is so, it's weird how, like you said, Brad, he's a bystander in so much of the destruction. Right. Well, I mean, he is the one who brought the rats, but yeah. once they're there, they, they, they do their thing. And also, Nasratu differs from some of its predecessors in uh, how some of the protagonists are treated. You have uh, a Jonathan Harker who has to be kept at bay because he too has become a threat because he is turning into a vampire. And then you have Van Helsing who doesn't believe in vampires. Right. So the entire resolution of most uh, vampire movies, which uh, Van Helsing is core to, is not available to us here. Unfortunately, that kind of leads to what I think is the, the weak link of this film, which is the uh, performance of Isabella Johnny mm. uh, as uh, Lucy, yeah. um, who she appeared to be under the vampire's spell, Mm-hmm. From the very beginning of the film, long before uh, Nosferatu had seen her picture right. or has any interaction with her, she actually acts a little bit like the hypnotized you know, townsfolks in the Heart of Glass. So I really wish her character was a little better portrayed, especially because the character is far more important in the resolution of the story. She is not saved. She saves herself. Because from reading Harker's diaries, she knows that, or his book on on vampires, uh, she knows that uh, a vampire can be killed by making them forget the time until the cock crows and uh, the sun comes up. And so she actively seduces the vampire yeah it, to cause his 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 own demise which uh is something that usually other characters would play a part in but in this case it's it's all lucy so that's actually kind of cool plot wise but the performance doesn't quite match with it right you don't see how like someone who looks so absolutely oblivious and in fact so easily su- seduced to literally turn the tables and like kind of comes out of nowhere <laughs> Right, and in another very strange decision, after the vampire is dead, he doesn't disintegrate or anything like that. He just lies there on the floor, like, again, pitifully. Yeah. This is a case where, like, I think he literally wanted to make the, a neorealistic vampire movie. <laughs> or, or, like, it's kind of his attempt to make a more natural vampire movie. I do like the idea that this one is, is so true to its own vision of what it is yeah. and and also and and also to the movie it's a remake of but Herzog first and foremost is making a Herzog film so his goal frankly sim- just like Stanley Kubrick had very different goals in The Shining than most uh, horror directors did he wanted to make 
the story into a Stanley Kubrick film. And I think Herzog turns Nosferatu into a Herzog film. And he's such a visionary director. I am all for it. I do want to point out, it is an incredibly eerie film. From the very first frames where where the credits run over these uh, mummified uh, sarcophaguses and yeah. uh, uh, and throughout the, the the film is a very consistent tone of eeriness and dankness and something that we're used to in horror films, but Herzog portrays just just a little bit more realistically. Yeah, it's his kind of like his interests in nature. And his interest in lonely outsiders just seemed to kind of manifest themselves through his take on the story. I mean, I think I agree with you that it's like kind of a very consistent presentation. There's not a lot of pivots in going on in the film. And it's kind of faithful to a lot of the beats of the story, whereas like the different authority figures in Stroshik, the level that the people who you quote-unquote expect to help resolve the threat are going to, in fact, be no help. Society will not help you in the case of this apocalyptic kind of plague. I mean, I think that's another case of his of his message coming through on here. Ultimately, it's impossible for me to get past a goofy-looking Kinski who, where the movie spends... It's slower pace, just like observing this figure, and you're just like, oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm supposed to pity him, but instead I pity Kinski for looking like that. Klaus Kinski might be the most difficult man in the world to film with. Of course, he's a man who has a tendency towards hysteria, and he's literally paranoid sometimes. But exactly that is his great quality on screen. And you just have to find a way to activate it and make it work for the screen. And he, the man has a presence and a, a force on screen that is unprecedented. Now, if you can believe this, it's actually possible that Kinski, Klaus Kinski, managed to become an even more pitiable figure <laughs> in, in Herzog's next film, uh, Wojciech in 1979. Here, Kinski is playing a character named Wojciech, who is a harried and frantic soldier. He finds himself put upon by his captain, and he's abused into like these ridiculous attempted medical treatments by his doctor. And he has a suspicion that his wife might not be entirely faithful to him. Oh, and uh, also, he might be going crazy because he hears apocalyptic sounds coming from the ground. This is a very different film for Herzog. It's based on an acclaimed, unfinished German play by George uh, Buchner, who uh, parts of it between uh, 1836 and 1837, and there's been kind of a consistent uh, controversy over what order the scenes should be... Uh, shown in in the theater and in this version you have a far more than usual fidelity to uh source material i believe the dialogue is taken directly from the play although i think most americans including myself had not heard of it it seems like it, it is somewhat of an institution 
in Germany and a classic that, that Herzog felt the need to uh, be faithful to. Yeah, I definitely see that because you're having characters spouting off this like real florid dialogue that seems like very arch and talking on these highfalutin concepts, but they do not sound like the usual kind of highfalutin concepts that you might have heard from Herzog in, in interviews and in, in characters from his earlier films. And there's these kind of like theatrical flourishes such as characters just engaging in like soliloquies while other people are standing next to them that belie it's like theatrical nature. Right. It also, it starts out saying this is a small town by the pond, almost creating a bit of a, of a fairy tale uh, yes, right. atmosphere towards it. And nothing seems particularly realistic. You don't, there, there is no real world equivalent to kind of whatever the military is supposed to be that Weissick He's like the only one of the only of. two soldiers in this entire town. <laughs> right. What is he guarding? <laughs> what is he doing? Right. And, and that that's never really explained, nor why the doctor has so much leeway on uh, how to handle this person. Yeah. But, and actually, here might be a problem where he's too faithful to the story, because mm -hmm. this story is stupid. I don't know what on earth people find in this tale, whose, which general thrust is similar to what happens in Stroshik. It's the idea of a, of a forgotten man who is beset upon by troubles brought upon society, who's uncaring and malicious people in these institutions just go to bring him down, you know? And it's the writing and the characters that he encounters come across like the first draft of like Raising Arizona era Coen <laughs> brothers. They're absurd, caricature, grotesque, and to people who are just plain old crazier than Wojciech ever could be. That's interesting that you make the Strozik comparison, because originally Herzog wanted to cast uh, Bruno S. in the role, and <laughs> eventually thought <laughs> the better of it, but because Bruno was working at a uh, factory and had already asked for the time off, uh, he felt he needed to write a script specifically for Bruno, and that's how the Strozik script came oh, about. Oh, fascinating! So, but what <laughs> What he eventually decided was that this was more of a fit for Kinski, who I, I don't know that this performance works. He's playing this meek, put-upon character, and, you know, he's definitely got the crazy. But if we're supposed to be sympathizing with him, which I, I, I think is the intent, it's just not working. Well, like, I have a weird kind of dual reaction to Kinski here. Well, it's actually multi-levels weird because where Kinski is attempting to portray a normal guy who has unfortunate events fall upon him, and when he's trying to play explicitly crazy, he both fails utterly. The former because you think he's crazy from the first shot, and the latter because... It's not depicted like visually and he, it's just him like scurrying around and, and, and just acting manic. But in the middle, there's times where he is incredibly frustrated by his station mm -hmm. in the military, where his sense of longing and yet, yet, um, incredible feelings of, of jealousy of the suitors his wife might be entertaining. There, I think Kinski does shine in it. Legitimately straight up shines mm. in it. Like, for me, when he plays a guy who's totally crazy, 
in Wojciech, it doesn't work. He plays a guy who's kind of like a normal everyman who's getting crushed. Doesn't work. When he plays a guy right at the knife's edge of where of his own desperation, then it does work for me. Well, I think one of the strategies of the film that might be undercutting it is, and I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's going for some comedy and not reaching it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, the doctor is clearly meant to be some sort of like very one-sided caricature of like, oh, those quacks, what crazy medical schemes are they going to come up with? Oh, and no, no, it's even worse than that because it's very clear that he's actually making things up to torture Wojciech, which is just a very odd situation. Is the play meant to, or the story meant to say about like how people put too much trust in doctors? Because doctors are actively trolling you; they're actually trying to <laughs> fuck with you. What kind of what the hell kind of attitude is that? Right, and, super, and again, if it's, it's super bizarre, if it's an unfinished play. That kind of explains a lot, although it doesn't explain why it would be such a beloved piece. The captain um, is even weirder, actually. Yeah. For a guy who is a captain, he calls Wojciech in, like, contempt, but with a weird kind of bemused admiration for how he perseveres. But at the same time, he's very, very unusually interested in his love life, and especially interested in pointing out what a cuckold he could be, which is like... I don't understand that if he actually was sleeping with his wife, but why would you be a disinterested third party in pointing that well, out? Well, it seems like the entire town kind of has an interest in humiliating uh, Weissick. Right. So, you know, there is that. Um, right, that's some sort of Green yeah. Acres-like right, right. You know, the, the, Newhart the, scenario, right? Yeah, it, it is not well executed plot-wise. It does some interesting things visually. Uh, it, there are... Very few cuts in the film. The very scenes are allowed to go on for 10 minutes or so between cuts, which is something that doesn't happen in Herzog elsewhere. And the climax of the film, which is effective, unfortunately it's not part of a better film, is shot in slow motion. Right. That's a very, right. That's a very stark, that's a very stark sequence. And, uh, and at that point, like Kinski's actually does a, a really tremendous amount of acting because in this slow motion you through just the motions of his face and the contortions of his body all these frustrations that have been building up for him have like are just made manifest out there right you know? he has realized that his wife really is cheating on him and that uh, makes him snap completely yeah and he stabs her to death in a very extent, not not a graphics uh, scene, but yeah. a very extended scene uh, of a murder, which uh, that Kinski can certainly sell. Yeah, and even though he's clearly off kilter from the very beginning of the movie, at that point, you actually see him make the. I mean, it sounds obvious that he that a murder would cross the threshold, but it's something else that in that sequence you see it happening in his psychology. You see he is fully broken down into pure madness after that uh, after that moment right and then after uh disposing of of the weapon uh, he throws it he he without explanation disappears yeah yeah i mean what i mean 
What do you what do you think on that? I I think you were right when you used the word absurdism. I I, I think uh, they might have been going for kind of a, a Samuel Beckett esque. Uh, just strange theatrical piece that isn't supposed to make sense. Mm-hmm. And those, of course, are notoriously difficult to transfer onto film. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, and right, this is some, um, this is kind of like a case where, like, it's pretty pain. It's a pretty, I find most of this movie, although, although Herzog does advance, does like advance in these ideas of like visual composition that he started with Heart of Glass, like, like the film looks the film looks lovely and it's and and it has these just great put together visual sequences like one where he's thinks he's in a field of like these kind of poppies these flowers of round round ends and they're all waving in there and and like and it shows how like his mental landscape is as frayed as what's as the physical landscape he's around the slow motion murder sequence and um and the and just the lighting and framing of events in the town but ultimately it's it's fairly it's it's the second most unpleasant film to me after the dwarf movie because you're looking at a guy who's just screwed he's screwed and he's off kilter from it's it's kind of the same problem of strojic multiplied by 20 or 30 times because cuz he's clearly on his last last absolute atom of a thread at the very beginning and then this is literally where a case where everybody in the town is out there to make sure that that thread is going to get cut as fast as po- as fast as possible in as brutal manner as possible you know so so i mean what's what's a person even make you know of of that like yeah maybe killing spree is understandable and in this situation i don't i don't even know i don't even i don't even know what's the point of it i don't know what on earth because because if this was meant to be, if this was meant to be a story of the common man getting oppressed, boy, is this is this a yeah. joke? This is a joke no one wants to hear. You don't cast Kinski as the common man, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Ultimately, I really don't see what they, what German fans of this play could see in this story. I mean, the story basically amounts to an unlikable strange loser that gets bullied by an entire town and abused enough to induce him to do something horrible the end this is a joke no one wants to hear and herzog barely wanted to say so kinski comes in from this film playing this such a unpleasant unsympathetic yet set upon character but then he reverses himself amazingly and so does Herzog in a way in like his next film his legendary Fitzcarraldo in 1982 um it's about an Irish guy named Fitzgerald although the locals call him Fitzcarraldo it's set during the 1900s in the Amazon during the height when it's being colonized by European nations for its rubber supply, and people are making vast fortunes out of it. And in the midst of it, Fitzgerald slash Fitzcarraldo has these dreams of building an opera house in the jungle. Now, now that might sound crazy, but wait till you hear and find out about how he actually decides to get this about. By going on a quest to get a steamship and put it on one hell of a unique journey. 
This is Herzog's epic. It's a huge movie, but it's huge because of the vision of what Herzog wants to accomplish here, which is so extraordinary that an entire other great movie was made about right. it. There That's is a, right. a documentary on the making of Fitzcarraldo called uh, Burden of Dreams, which if you see Fitzcarraldo and love it like we do, you'll want to watch right afterwards. But we start with Kinski, who is giving a surprisingly nuanced performance, especially considering kind of what was lacking in his last one, where we are sympathetic to him. Yeah. He's, he's a bit crazy. He's a bit out there, but he has this dream. He has this love of opera, which is established right away as, as him and his girlfriend, uh, Claudia Cardinal, who runs the, uh, the local whorehouse, uh, actually rose uh their boat into the op into the opera house and and makes their way in and even though they they don't have a ticket he says i earned my right to be here <laughs> by loving the opera yes. and the way he delivers that and the way he sells these impossible dreams he has mm -hmm. we buy it right the most surprising thing about kinski's performance in here is not how much like it's um uh nuanced how much it is totally sympathetic and on his side viscaraldo is a character that inspires mm -hmm. he's the underdog who has a dream and will let nothing stand in his way of having his dream become a reality. And this is, this is a case of obsession, but in the, but treated in the most positive terms and for the most positive of reasons. Through the course of this film, you want him to succeed. His arrival by rowboat is no accident. He says he's earned to be there because it's literally through the sweat of his own body that's mm -hmm. just got him to this place, you know. And Kensky is so good. At delivering the level of just joy and exultation upon the music that he hears. And that's one of the ways this movie has a secret weapon to show how we're on his side, is that this is the music of Enrico Caruso, who is this legendary opera figure, and even today has just this staggering voice that it puts up in just this epic range of emotion and pure human feeling that just comes out, seems to pour out of any, like, uh, aperture which is playing his music. So when he shows up at a performance that Kinski is rowing across to go and see, and you and he gets to see it, you feel it right there with him, because that music that's being played is magnificent. His voice is magnificent. And you understand, at that moment, you understand how a person could be so smitten by taking this music and giving it to people, which, by the way, is also a great feature of his character because he he wants to play it. He doesn't want to use this as a way of showing his superiority to other groups. Rather, he even plays it for the local children in and where he lives, where they don't even understand his language. 
but he feels that this music is a universal language. Right, and, and it would not be a surprise that Herzog feels the same way and is an opera lover, and in between uh, all these uh, films and documentaries he makes, he has also directed a number of operas for the stage. Oh, how about so that? This I didn't is, know that. So this is something close to his heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's really successful at bring really successful at bringing this out. Again, when you have a figure with a, such a great voice like Caruso, that does seem to make things like a little easier. It seems to me that like how we had said, I said earlier how Aguirre is his most Herzog at his most Herzogian. Fitzcarraldo to me, and not just because it's both set in the Amazon, it's like the other side of being the most. It's is also the most Herzogian, but. Whereas the first one, Aguirre, is how Herzog really feels, Fitzgeraldo is what he really wants. That's a, that's a great way to put it, because you can't help but compare the two films. The same lead actor with the same setting, but it's in its differences that's really fascinating, because it takes place hundreds of years later. The, the, the results could not be more different. So when in Aguirre... The conquistadors go down the river into uh, into the jungle. The uh, Indians are faceless, aside from some they've captured. Yeah, there is there can be no nothing but conflict and death as a result. In Fitzcarraldo, it's a completely different story. We've moved forward in civilization, and we have now instead of a madman like Aguirre. Uh, an eccentric who loves the arts. So when the movie threatens to turn into the same situation with the Indians suspicious of this giant steamboat uh, coming down the Amazon and are ready to attack, what does he do? He puts his uh, record player on top of That's the right. ship and puts the speaker out and responds to the right. potential it's- of attack with the music that he loves. But what also hints is the potential of attack. The potential of the attack is you start hearing these tribal drums Mm -hmm. that people on the steamship have taken as what's going to play before an impending attack. And in one of many, many, many winning lines that that Kinski says, he he goes, you know what, now it's Caruso's turn. Yes. He (laughs) sets it on a table and then... Caruso's music interacts with the drumming in a, in a music, and which, and and eventually that drumming and the battle, it's tr- uh, the attack, it's heralding subsides, and to me it's like one of the greatest moments of like showing kind of like the power of music to transcend people and really express their social situation. It really harkens back to like. Look at how, look at so many of like the most legendary scenes in movies have that. Like, look at Casablanca as mm-hmm. they sing the Mar, as, you know, they go and sing the Marseillaise, for instance. Um, look at the scene where in Night of the Hunter, when the uh, leading on the everlasting arms gets done from the old lady's story instead of being the evil preacher's story, you know? And this is, ranks right there among them. You know, how that, how Caruso's music not only ends up like drowning out the music of an impending attack, but becomes kind of, this is, I'm mixing musical metaphors, but a drum beat from which inspires 
the population to become an aid for Fitzgeraldo. Right, because his own crew has mutinied, uh, left the ship, aside from the uh, engineer who was actually sent to be a spy by the, the shipping company, yeah. uh, the cook who was probably drunk. and uh, But he's the, a good shot, and, and he good, knows the right. natives. <laughs> That's right. And, yeah, he's the translator and the uh, the, ca- the captain. So he's got now these uh, four, four people. And then you have these uh, wonderful scenes where they start to interact with the Indians. The Indians come on board. There's a little suspicion at first. But when they feel comfortable with having a young child playing with the crew, right? Then, you know, exactly. Then, then you know a degree of trust has been established. Yeah, in a weird way. This can, you can actually, despite the events that happen, I kind of think this might be also like Herzog's most conventional movie because it's uh, it's definitely the movie that I would recommend to people to see as the gateway Herzog. Mm-hmm. Not just because it's Herzog at like the best uh, top form, but also because it's structured in a way that's very very accessible. It, you're you're not sometimes when you see a movie, even a high quality movie, it's like it, it can be so different. Right, that you might that you just need some adjustment. You need you need to settle down in it. And I think Fitzcarraldo provides a lot of good structure for for people to get into the story right away. Right away, you know. Right away, you see. This is a dude who loves the opera. You feel his love mm-hmm. for the opera and his story and his love for this music and the way he wants to give it even to the native population is then contrasted so well with like these rich robber barons who are, who are so nihilistic in their, these are people who have found El Dorado in a way, right? Right. <laughs> and they, mm-hmm. and what have they become? They've become just these decadent, like, uh, people who just, who just literally like, like messing with Fitzcarraldo and other people who they feel are like below them, you know? And, their tasteless vulgarity is so effectively brought out that when Fitzgerald crashes a dinner party and he plays Caruso and then some some waiter flunky tries to turn it off and Kinski went and proceeds to attack him and just <laughs> and he he makes an angry rant while holding the phonograph like it's a like it's a, a treasure uh, like it's a treasure in his arms which into him it is right he's and you, he's still Kinski after that's all. right yes but you are but unlike so many of his other like depictions you are 100% on his side. You're like, yeah, the hell with these guys. Like Kinski mm-hmm. yell says, you know what? You, you may think I'm you may think I'm nobody, but I'll I'll rubber you. <laughs> and you know that's the kind of level of articulation that he has, but you understand what he means. It's right. Like, this is a- me and my music are mm-hmm. greater than all you and your gold can ever pay. And I also want to add that like it, this movie, this is an even a movie that has like the standard love interest who loves the hero unequivocally. And by the way, that's also another secret weapon that the movie does. Because Claudia Cardinal, a stunningly beautiful actress, to me, completely convinces. When you see her look at Kinski, when you see her be affectionate towards him, you fully believe that through like anybody, no matter how crazy he acts, if he can get the love of a woman like that, he can't be all wrong, man. This is an interesting pivot for Herzog because you're right. It is a more conventional story, but he still has the same vision of exploration, the same unique way 
of filming the world yes. that he had earlier. And and I think that in his narrative films moving forward, we're going to lose some of that. That's but funny. here is the one time he's still at full force with what makes him Herzog, yet he does something very un-Herzogian, which is a story of optimism and hope. That's right. And that story of optimism also reflects on this crew. Because if you think about it, like that crew is, it is literally a ragtag group of misfits, right? Mm -hmm. But each one of them is, each one of the people on the crew who's remaining, who don't mutiny, they're all endearing in their own way and all have value in their own way. And this may be the biggest film since Signs of Life where that spirit of camaraderie, mm -hmm. of openness in a, has manifested itself in a fiction film of Herzog's, you know? And for all different reasons, these members of the crew, they obviously don't have it all together in different ways, but they're all capable in their own ways. Like the cook is a capable, is a capable cook with a lot of lust for life and he's a good crack shot. Um, the guy working the engine block is a, maybe a spy, but he's also a very, he's also very capable. Mm -hmm. And when Kinski tells him his scheme, he's like, you know what? I'm in. I'm in, buddy. And they shake hands. And, and a great moment. And what a scheme it is. But before we talk about that, it is such a cool scheme that if you haven't seen the movie, you owe it to yourself to watch it uh, before hearing all about it, because it is something else. That, that's right. So Fitzcarraldo has a vision of opening a uh, secondary river on the Amazon to the rubber trade uh, to make enough money to build his own opera house. And he realizes that if he could get his ship from one river to the other, which is isolated by the rapids, that way he could have a monopoly on all the rubber trade and get rich and build his opera house. So we then lead to the, the centerpiece, this extraordinary sequence where with the help of, of his new Indian allies, he goes about literally climbing a mountain with a steamship. Yeah. Here is a case where, like, I think Herzog realizes or shows us the burden and the dream that I think he's had or always has all at once. The idea that like you, you can actually through perseverance and ingenuity, you can literally do magic and it's really happening. This is not special effects. He literally moves a steamship over a mountain in fact, this, this is loosely based on, on a true story in which the original Fitzcarraldo uh, took the ship over the mountain in pieces. This would not do uh, for Herzog, right. who wanted the visual sight of the full ship. Actually, uh, half the ship, it's uh, cut uh, sideways so that we only see the, the, the one half. But that is enough of a feat to work on two levels one mm -hmm. is we're seeing the character struggle with the mechanics with the engineering of this and also the cooperation and the communication that is now open between them and 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 the indian tribes but at the same time 
you're realizing that in this pre-CGI age, what we what it looks like we are seeing is actually happening. And certainly he has resources, police systems and whatnot, that they did not have access to hundreds of years ago. But no matter, th- this sequence is one of the great set pieces of film. Yeah. What it does is it takes like his Herzog's feeling of ecstatic truth, right? And but he sometimes he wants to express these things through like the ways movies uniquely can create their own like world. And sometimes he gets these effect from like attempting to use documentary elements and have our belief in the reality of what we're seeing help inform the effect that he wants to make. But damn it, in this movie, both prisms literally combine to one, where the joy that Fitzgeraldo sees of having his scheme work is matched equally by our joy and astonishment and wonder that what we are seeing is what's really happening. Mm-hmm. Like the wor- the movie world and our own world, they share that common fulcrum of an astonishing feat that's been done. And because this film is an embarrassment of riches, even after this major sequence of the steamship going over the mountain, we still have yet another uh, jaw-dropping uh, set of scenes where um, the Indians, for uh, spiritual reasons, have uh, cut the rope on, on yeah. the ship. And now we get the scene where he has to uh, survive the rapids. Yes. That whole sense that you are witnessing the same reality that the characters of the movie that you know in your head is a movie, but you don't feel that way. The sense of like pure vermilitude between where the movie world and your own is, is all combined. It just keeps going. Like you're totally right. It's in that rapids and you're just like, you feel that like, Oh my God, Fitzcarraldo, he might, I hope he survives the rapids. And also thinking, Oh my God, this is Klaus Kinski. I hope he survives the rapids. <laughs> I hope the people who are on this boat drive the rapids because it's really a right, boat. They're really it's rapids. Really, it's yeah. really, it's really hitting these things and it puts you on edge. And what you feel in wonder in the beginning of this, like is put into like terror, sheer terror and suspense during the rapid sequence. Right. So in addition to everything else, Herzog creates a great action film. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, that's right. He manages to make an action thriller that that all the CGI in the world could not make more more compelling than what he manages to do mm-hmm. with some some practical effects. And by really doing it, he wanted through his filmmaking to be able to just make the transcendent, the unique moment akin to what he feels of Caruso was able to do in the musical form, and. I don't think there could be any doubt that he was just phenomenally successful out with. For sure. And, but I think he also loved this challenge that, that he placed before himself on how to do this physical task. Cause as we discussed at the, at the very beginning of this conversation, Herzog has interests that go beyond film. He's an adventurer. He's, he portrays himself as somebody 
who might be a little mad himself. Yes. And, you know, again, we have some of that is uh, P.T. Barnum stuff. But then when you look at what he's accomplished here, you do have to say normal directors don't do this. Right. Normal directors would not try to do this. Mm -hmm. The concerns that have pervaded across all of his other films up to this point, the conflicts are still there. Like the man against a a man with an impossible goal, the man of a society won't support him. The person whose obsessions just help bring him to these unique places. But here it works on a level of complete and utter triumph. He gives us a window onto what his like his most optimistic dream and damn it, he pulled it off. I think his like first one in English was made after um, Fitzcarraldo, called We're the Green Ants Dream from 1984. It stars Bruce Spence as a geologist named Hackett leading a group a testing for a possible excavation site for an Australian mining company. Um, and he runs into resistance from the local Aborigines who uh, claim this is like a location that's sacred to them and they will not move from the location, even in the onrushing path of a bulldozer. And the movie looks into how Hackett's attitudes towards the Aborigines changes as they go to court to make their case for keeping a land, that land, a place where, quote unquote, green ants can dream. Right. Now the Herzog World Tour has brought us to the outbacks of Australia, which, uh, is, as, as we know from other Australian films, is a visual, visually rich place to be. Yeah. But as you hinted at, we, the actual narrative here is his most conventional. It, or conventional up to this point. Yes. It, um, is a pretty direct, uh, story of the idea of progress versus the needs of the n- native local population, pe- local population yep. in this in this case uh, the aborigine population and and there, there there are some visually interesting ways this is uh, this is shown they're uh, mining for uranium mm. and some aboriginal tribe leaders uh stand in the way and then a fellow yeah. with a, a bulldozer tries to scare them off and actually ends up half burying them before right. he's he's forced to stop right a weird and, sort of archaeology in reverse right and what, what what i like about this film is the little glimpses we get into uh aboriginal culture the instruments they use the language that they use so you have these really authentic performances from the Aboriginal Well, they're tribe super leaders. more than authentic, in fact. They're, they're the actual thing. Right. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. because some of the people um, acting in the film are actually no less than Aborigines who had engaged in lawsuits for these very disputes mm-hmm. among land that went to the Australian courts. And in a notable development, Herzog used... Uh, some uh, of the music that they did and made that the soundtrack and mm-hmm. took the proceeds, some of the proceeds of the money and literally gave it to the communities so they can go and uh, process through future lawsuits to protect their own land rights. So this is a very interesting, almost inversion of a documentary <laughs> where you're telling a narrative story, but you're involving the real people involved. Right. And because of that, because... Herzog is invested in 
what it, what what is still a current conflict, although this is based on actual incidents that took place earlier, there's a more direct opinion about right and wrong being uh, put forward here, yes. whereas a lot of this would have gone unspoken and inferred. In, in earlier films here, it's said outright. There is a, a really striking scene that I like. A group of Aborigines are gathered in a grocery store. Yes. And we, we yes. wonder, well, what are they doing in the grocery store? Because yeah. this was a holy site that had been destroyed, and then yeah. the grocery store had built been built on that. Yeah. And they just kept going to the spot, and eventually the grocery store accommodated them. Yeah. The other very interesting subplot is that the Aborigines have come across a giant plane. And they Or they requested one. They requested one, but after they, they were given a tour because there was a lot of pre-trial negotiations to yeah. try to get them to agree to vacate the land. And one of their requests was uh, to have this plane, and they get it. This plane becomes this kind of visual metaphor yeah. for the mystical green ants. That's right, because it's also the plane is also green, and it has kind of a little odd shape that, I don't know if it makes it look instant, but there's some bulbous sections of the plane. Mm -hmm. The Aborigines have some sort of like reverence for this contraption, and in a very interesting development, they sort of fly off, and then no one can find them. <laughs> right. So that's a very cute level of mysticism. It's like they were kind of uniquely qualified to be able to take that plane somewhere where the um, Caucasian Australians <laughs> could not go. Now, before we think this is too authentic, we should mention that the myth of the green ants dreaming, which is the main claim that the Aborigines cite for the land, is something that was, in fact, invented whole cloth by Herzog. Not again, Herzog. <laughs> Come on, Werner. What are you doing? I gotta think that there are some Aboriginal myths you could have used. Why are you taking your own situation and putting it in the mouths of people and then expecting people to, like, take that as value, you know? Herzog's like, gonna be Herzog. Hers well, you diminish the authentic feelings that you get when you literally make moves like that, especially when they're not necessary. And he, in fact, got burned on this movie in another way, too, because despite the company being fairly accommodating, people in Australia were quite taken aback by this depiction because they felt that it was way too antagonistic in its portrayal of how the Aborigines have been mistreated. Now, of course, partly that could be national sentiment, maybe, maybe, right. but it angered people so much that, in fact, an Australian broadcaster named Philip Adams literally wrote up an article called, Damn it, Herzog, you're a liar. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I mean, that's a case where, like, you know, that's a case where, like, the irresponsibility went even further than what happened in Land of Sons and Darkness, because you're, you're casting aspersions upon pe real people in a real conflict in a way you're not doing with, say, your period pieces, and... And this is a case where it could actually affect policy. People's attitudes could be changed due to your presentation of things that just aren't right. right. And the strange thing about that is that uh, he does offer more sympathy or sympathetic characters on the side of the white Australians, but at the same time want to try to accommodate and learn about the culture of the Aborigines 
But in the end, I, I do think that compared to the vast majority of films we've been discussing, this is kind of a minor work. Yeah. Um, I have no particular complaints about it. I think it, it works well enough. Mm-hmm. But, you know, following Fitzcarraldo, following some of the visionary films we've been discussing, yeah. there's nothing wrong with having a work that's kind of in a minor key, but I, I think that's what this is. And of course, uh, determination means to to go rogue, uh, which mm. means uh, the borderline of, of where uh, illegal or criminal activity starts has to be somewhat blurred, mm. and and you have to you have to to be determined to do your film, but you must not be caught. Kinski's world tour continues on an actual bi-coastal subject on his next movie, Cobra Verde, in 1987. This is the third case, the hat trick of Kinski striking again, a madman who finds his way in the wilderness and is is in conflict. But this time, he's an outlaw in South America called Cobra Verde. Um, he's causing trouble in like Brazil in the 1800s. So the wealthy people in the area uh, need to get rid of him. And what do they find is like the best way to deal with it? Well, it's like the best way is to hire him to oversee their um, um, operations uh, in West Africa, where he has to maintain a fort that's been threatened by a menacing tribal leader in that location. And so when Kinski gets there, he finds it's it's basically going to be him and a single associate facing off an army from this tribe. So, well, who do you think's going to win? <laughs> well, this is the last of the Kinski-Herzog uh, collaborations. Sadly, Kinski would pass away in the years uh, following this film. In a lot of ways, it's a pretty great movie. It's it's very entertaining, but that actually might be somewhat of a problem because it ignores the elephant in the room. Klaus Kinski is playing a slave trader. I think what you gave is maybe one of the rare examples of a beneficial spoiler. That's a detail of the movie where... You might be really interested in the story, but if you didn't know he was going to be going to West Africa to maintain a slaving operation, mm-hmm. if you come across that information without realizing it, you would be, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> well, you'd be waiting for something else to happen. You'd be waiting for the film to address it in a more universal sense. And then when the film does not address it, you notice. Yeah, again, I think that's a beneficial spoiler to point out that, in fact, slavery is just treated matter-of-factly. It mm-hmm. is not criticized. It is per- There is no sense that it is portrayed in a negative light. It's right. just the way things are. Which would be one thing if this were a realistic film, but it's actually a larger-than-life film. Right. It aims to and succeeds at becoming this grand rousing adventure type story with a with an adventure type momentum to it and yet you just can't help but just think why does it have to be slaves <laughs> <laughs> and it's a real shame because the character of Cobra Verde is a real fascinating kind of villainous character his outlaw antics in Brazil or have this just real sense of 
weirdly epic poetic stuff that harkens back to some Leone or Corbucci-esque spaghetti westerns. There's a great moment where Kinski has been hired by one of the uh, plantation masters to control his slaves, and he's a nasty character himself, and he has three daughters, and Kinski proceeds to get all three of them pregnant. (laughs) And... Once he discovers this, he's ready to to confront Kinski, who at this point he hasn't used the the name Cobra Verde, but he says in in a wonderfully menacing way, as if this explains everything. I am the bandit Cobra Verde. That's right. <laughs> and when he says it, partly because of Kinski's way of being in tune with his own mania, and partly because of the uh, way that he has been presented earlier in the movie. It's a successful badass line, and and you're like, ooh, there is a big throwdown statement, you know? The first 15 minutes of Cobra Verde, I find really captivating because he is actually using to create his own myth world. And it has a kind of Herzog kind of weirdness, like when Cobra Verde approaches a desolate bar and has this really weird conversation with the proprietor, or when he goes and, like, menaces a traveling group which has a carriage and a lady comes out of the carriage after it falls and starts dancing. (laughs) It's a very winning kind of magical kind of world that, that he puts in. And I would have liked to see the bandits do normal bandit things, not, slave thing <laughs> right because the movie has other plans when yeah. the solution to the uh, plantation owner's problem that he works out with uh, his uh, fellow aristocrats is to actually send him to africa but what they don't count on is kinski uh instead manages to take over an entire yes. uh tribe <laughs> yeah Kinski is so maniacal in here, so dedicated, such a snarling presence that has such a level of iron dedication of like how unstoppable he can be that, yeah, he's going to go and prevail, even though he, is, he has an, an army, which, by the way, Herzog does such a great job of showing like not just the army of this tribe, but also all the different rituals that this tribe does, mm-hmm. the different dances, the different chieftains, the entourage and his many wives and there's just such panoply of different color and form and all this west african culture um is just made manifest through like use of thousands and thousands of extras to just overrun this fort you know and again and like we live in a cgi world and so when you see all these people just going out and pulling together this big production of a whole battle scene and you can just tell that it was just on on like the most scant of level of resources to make a big grand mm-hmm. battle sequence it can't help but thrill you to, to just say man you pulled it off right the herzog visuals are still breathtaking yeah uh, mm-hmm. and how and how kinski manifests on like cobra verde's motivations still remain like nefarious and not very good. No. But but, but he's but damn it, it's just like his not only villainy, it's just kind of compelling in how all encompassing it is, I guess. 
I just find it captivating how he's just like, for example, trains a bunch of topless female warriors to like all do the military formations in sequence. Yes, the, the Amazon warriors they're referred to. It's quite the uh, epic uh, training montage. That's right. They're incredibly fierce, and Kinski matches them yes. in fierceness. One of the sequences I like is at one point, He's kidnapped, and in order to avoid the original polite invitation, he says, I always have to have one foot in the sea. His his own yeah. fort is on, on the coast. Right. And so they tie a bottle of seawater to his <laughs> foot. That's right. And manage to drag him <laughs> to their tribe with this uh, bottle remaining on his foot and him hogtied. And just yep. the kind of his reaction as he's uncovered as a prisoner is kind of priceless. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's right. And... It's kind of funny in the sense that, like, Herzog makes as good a use of a nearly empty fort as he did in his first film, Signs of Life. But here, Kinski is, is a huge enough presence to just feel like he is lord and master and fully occupying this territory. He's not a guy where this environment is going to dwarf him. And you're so right. Kinski is going all out in, in the battle sequences. He's, he seems to be like in three or four places at once during, during these sequences. And both times when he faces off, like the guy calling himself King, who is the threatening tribesman, is just, just so great. And I think this was based upon a real outlaw who he's kind of a legendary figure in West African history <laughs> because these operations were so extensive in West Africa. But. He did not get the kind of demise that Cobra Verde does in the movie, no. which I, which is really, really interesting. And I want to bring up because it ties into what we say in the criticism about his approach to race. This sequence, which I find kind of poetically fascinating, yet it could be kind of troubling if you look at the implications because it's basically Verde is trying to leave. You see a figure out there against the sunset, and this figure looks to be walking on all fours, and it's and it's an African whose like back is bent right. in an inverted manner, and one of his legs are swiveling in a different way. So he looks kind of like some sort of crab or spider apparition. And as the sequence goes on, for the first time. Cobra Verde is scared, and he desperately is trying to get his boat into the water without success as this figure is slowly sidling over to him. Again, I think it's fascinating on a number of levels. Well, we discussed the uh, exploitation element in some Herzog, and, and this is another example. He's taken a uh, deformed, crippled individual and is using him for dramatic effect yeah. in a way that, you know, may not be very tasteful in the, in the context of the film that he's there simply to pro provide a uh, counterpoint to what Kinski is doing. I mean, in a way, this scene kind of sums up both sides of the, uh, Herzog exploitation formula because yeah. you have this unfortunate bit of business going on while at the same time you have a wonderfully rousing and intense demise for Cobra Verde uh, himself, which would have been equally as intense without this yeah. additional character. He knows that his game is up. 
he is going to be killed. The only way he figures to escape is to, on his own, move this boat that's too big for one person to possibly move, yet he tries his damnedest, and you see him fighting the forces of just gravity and That's right. losing. That's right. And the waves that are mm-hmm. continually like hit him full force as he's trying to drag this boat out into the water. I look at that sequence and I think this is where I come closest to kind of appreciating Herzog's statement on ecstatic truth. Because logically speaking, that's really not cool to like use someone's real disability to make your point. Mm-hmm. But damn, that is a phenomenally compelling image to show how so much of African culture and the people in that culture were broken. It feels to me like the ghosts of broken slaves and broken Africans past in the way that he's approaching Verde, a satisfying way of just trying to go and get re- get revenge upon this guy for for the industry he's in. Well, if that is the intent of the scene, then I agree with you because the way you describe it gives reason for this scene that's more than uh, pure effect. I did not garner that subtext but if it's there it's to the film's credit and since the slavery issue really is not dealt with Mm -hmm. in any way except to give cobra verde and very noble end and a sense of desperation where he didn't have before maybe you can say that it's kind of a way of the film covering its bets basically saying no 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 we get it (laughs) right we get it this is a real horrible thing it's kind of like the, the gangster movies of the 40s where the gangster has a grand old time only to be gunned down in a hail of bullets in the last mm-hmm. minute. <laughs> Maybe this is that way of like saying, okay, we had a rousing adventure, but now you have to face the fact that what he did was awful and he's a bad guy. And he deserves to die. Here's him, <laughs> here's him dying in desperation. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, so there, yep, yep, he's bad. Right. But, but also, but also dying in style because. Yes. Like with any Kinski character who is going to die, you you certainly want him uh, to be uh, fighting, kicking, and screaming That's right. all the way. That's right. You look at Kinski and all the films that he's done with Herzog, and if you were to say about him or about any actor that his vampire is the most sedate <laughs> character that he plays, <laughs> well... That's saying something unique about the kind of ways that he would imbue a role, wouldn't it? For sure. And, uh, you know, when we uh, get into uh, part two, one thing that will be apparent is going to be the lack of Kinski. So the tone is going to change a bit when you don't have this character, this actor that so perfectly encapsulates so much of what Herzog is trying to do dramatically. That's true, although... Herzog may have found a potential other madman, <laughs> um, but that will have to wait for another day because uh, Herzog's catalog is just too vast to even fit in one of our marathon podcasts. So we're uh, going to stop over here at Cobra Verde, and in a future episode, we'll go 
uh, look over the second part of, of Herzog's career from his film Lessons of Darkness up through the, at the very least, the dual films that came out a year ago, Salt and Fire and Into the Inferno. In the meantime, we want to go thank you guys for uh, joining us on this like exploration of Herzog. Obviously, a director who provides endless amounts of fascination through the different films made up to Cobra Verde. If you have uh, questions or suggestions or criticisms that you would like to go and share with us at the Directors Club, uh, you can uh, reach us over at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And we're available from subscriptions at iTunes at the Director Club Podcast. And you can catch our episodes also online on our site at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks, everyone. Yes, thanks for listening. And tune in next time for another episode of the Director's Club. People don't realize yet we have learned about new dangers that we are facing, like overpopulation or, let's say, uh, atomic uh, fission or whatever, or pollution of the world and the entire environment. And we have not understood the graveness of uh, the lack of images. And I'm quite sure we will just die out like some prehistorical dinosaurs. Mm-hmm.